0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. You all ready for this one? On WCPT 820.
1: Hi, thank you for joining me this Tuesday, February 13th. Whew. we got a lot going on, don't we? Um, yes, indeedy. Um, they are going to be voting to fill George Santos' seat in Long Island. They are going to be voting tonight for a second attempt to impeach Cabinet member Alejandro Mayorkas, Homeland Security Secretary. Um, Brandon Johnson just announced that he is not going to renew the Shot Spotter contract. Um, Shot Spotter is, of course, that audio system that is supposed to be. Uh, linking up a bunch of different microphones so that if there's a gunshot, police can be dispatched and not have to wait for somebody to call 911. Um, A very small percentage of arrests and prosecutions have come from that shot spotter use in Chicago. And the fear is that if there are, if somebody is... um, setting off fireworks, if a car backfires, that police will be dispatched to an area, to a neighborhood, uh, believing that somebody has a gun and is shooting it, when indeed there is nothing like that going on. And the fear is that basically you'll have a neighborhood where nothing is happening and uh, suddenly an armed police presence descends on it. Brandon Johnson promised when he was running for office that he would get rid of ShotSpotter. But um, Mayor Lori Lightfoot extended the contract. And um, Brandon Johnson, up until today, when the announcement was made that we are not going to uh, renew the contract when it expires, I think it expires in um, a week and a half that um, he's been very tight-lipped, and a lot of people were wondering if he has was rethinking this decision. But um, he, as a matter of fact, this morning, I don't know, one of the newsletters, I think it was Axios Chicago, um, said, you know, we're waiting for a decision, we don't know what he's going to do. <clears throat> as of <clears throat> what they published this morning, so as of what they knew last night, but um, today, about 1130, 1140, the city of Chicago put out a statement saying that it will not renew the contract with the company um, that, um, that brought ShotSpotter to Chicago, and they're going to decommission the technology by September of this year. The contract expires—well, that's interesting, because I saw February 24th, but this— Release as it expires, February sixteenth, which is of course Friday. Um, but the the speakers that are supposed to hear the shots, it will be September before they are all removed or decommissioned, as the city says. So um, they're asking the Chicago Police Department to revamp operations and come up with different training and a different response model. And um, they are going to, according to this press release, consult with the community, violence prevention organizations and law enforcement. Get everybody together, get everybody to weigh in on what do we do um, to have a quick response when it's needed in especially in the south and west sides. So um, Brandon Johnson um, following through on a campaign promise there. So that is probably the biggest uh, local news right now. And um, (laughs) two things to keep an eye on. Now, the vote, the second vote to try to impeach Joe Biden's cabinet member, Alejandro Mayorkas, is going to take place tonight. Why tonight? Why the rush? Because they're afraid... That um, that Long Island vote that's taking place today to fill George Santos seat, they're really afraid that's going to go to a Democrat, which would mean one more Democrat in the House of Representatives. When they took the vote before, apparently Steve Scalise wasn't there. He has been undergoing treatment for blood cancer, and um, he has now is either on a break from that treatment Or he's finished it, and he is going to be present today. So remember, um, it was a tie vote, and therefore it went down to defeat. So the hope is that with Steve Scalise there and without another Democrat, that they will pull this impeachment vote off. There's virtually no chance of him being convicted in the Senate. I mean... Senate Republicans are, are really looking at this as the partisan political stunt that it is. And for some unfathomable reason, a lot of them are calling it out and saying just that. But. Um, that's what's going to happen. You know, um and it's going to happen tonight because this is the, literally their last prayer. The way they were able to take this vote again, um, this went, this measure went down to defeat. But they had, Mike Johnson had one of his Republicans who voted yes on the impeachment switch their vote to a no. And apparently there's some rule in the House of Representatives that if you are part of the majority that votes a measure down, then somehow you create a pathway for that measure to be resurrected. I know, it's obscure. You know who explains it really well? First term and probably last term, Democratic Congressman Jeff Jackson from North Carolina. He's been posting videos that I've shared with you from time to time where he really explains in very clear, normal people-talking terms what's going on on Capitol Hill. And he posted a video talking about the impeachment vote. And I say first and last term because his uh, state of North Carolina has been redistricted, and it has been so gerrymandered by the Republicans there that he has no chance he has no chance of winning another term in Congress. He's not giving up on political life. Oh, no. He's um, he's he's going to find another race to run in North Carolina. But they have successfully eliminated him from Congress. He posted a, a video where he explained what's going on with the impeachment vote. And I'd really like to share that with you. Listen to this.
2: A few days ago, and for the first time in 150 years, we were about to impeach a cabinet secretary. So I'm on the House floor, and I'm watching the speaker to see if he's going to call the vote. He's got two members who are voting no and another who's being a little vague, so he might have three no votes. That's a problem for him. It means if every member of the minority party shows up, the impeachment will fail. But one member of the minority party is in the hospital, so he calls the vote. The big vote clock on the wall starts counting down, We've got five minutes to vote. Then a side door opens and the congressman who is in the hospital gets wheeled onto the House floor wearing a blazer over his hospital clothes and no shoes. He casts his vote and now it's a tie. A tie vote is very rare and it means the vote fails. The Speaker doesn't want it to fail. So he's trying to get one of his three no votes to flip. So the Speaker's allies pick the one they think is the most likely to flip and they go to work on him. They've got him surrounded, and voices are raised, and fingers are waving. It's pretty heated. And this guy just folds his arms and shakes his head. He ain't flippin'. Meanwhile, the vote clock is run out, but the vote isn't technically over until the speaker bangs the gavel, but he ain't banging it because he's trying to find one more vote. So the minority party starts chanting for him to close the vote, and he doesn't want to, but eventually he has no choice, and he closes it. The impeachment vote fails, but... He's got another move. He gets one of his allies who voted for impeachment to switch his vote to be against it. Why? Because if you're on the winning side of a vote that fails, you're allowed to request another vote. And the Speaker definitely wants another vote. So we watch as someone walks up to the House Clerk and changes his vote, just so he can do the Speaker a favor and request a revote later on. And I was told while I was filming this that we'll be voting on impeachment again tomorrow, And the reason the Speaker wants to hold that vote as soon as possible is because the special election to replace George Santos is also tomorrow. And if the majority party fails to hold that seat, then things get even harder for the Speaker. Wild times in your United States Congress, and I will keep you posted.
1: I love that guy. I think his loss from Congress is going to be keen, keenly felt. Um, He just is such a voice of reason. Okay, so he explained why they are rushing to get this vote done tonight. Who knows? (laughs) You know how late they're going to be at this because, you know, this is what's important. Not aid for Ukraine. Not a border bill. No, this is what's important. Impeaching a cabinet member. Unbelievable. 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 So, uh, let's go back to that election in Long Island. Today is the day. This, um, Jeff Jackson recorded that, uh, audio yesterday. So today is the day that the people who, uh, voted George Santos into Congress, they get a do-over. They absolutely get a do-over. And, um, Republicans are. If not certain, they are very, 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 very fearful that they are going to lose that seat, which, as Jeff referred to, means one more Democratic vote. That's why they have to impeach Mayorkas tonight, (laughs) because this may be the last night that they can pull off a one-vote majority on this impeachment process. Um, Politics Girl, who uh, we've shared uh, audio with from time to time, did a a posting on this election that is taking place today in Long Island. And I thought she nailed it. So listen to this.
3: This election is so important. Not only will it fill George Santos's seat, it'll set the tone for 2024. This election is either an approval of the complete ineptitude of the Republican controlled House and all of their extremist positions, or it says we're going to start using our common sense and make a change. The Republicans only have a teeny tiny majority in Congress, and this will set the stage to flip the House in November. On Tuesday, February 13th, the Long Island NASA District will have the opportunity to elect a leader who will stand for democracy, protect a woman's right to choose, and will put people above politics. As I've said before, Thomas Swasey is the person for the job. People know Tom. He served this district as their congressman from 2017 to 2023, only stepping down to run for governor. He's a common sense guy with a proven track record of delivering for his constituents. His opponent, Mozzie Pillip, is backed by anti-abortion extremists and dark money donors. She has no track record, very few clear positions, and until recently was a registered Democrat. Her entire campaign makes no sense. And the people of New York's third deserve better than another mega extremist. The last thing we need is another vote for this radical Republican agenda. We have to use every election to send a clear message that we don't agree with the direction they want the country to go, and we plan to fight back. So spread the word and let's get Tom Swasey elected.
1: Sounds like a plan to me. Um, I don't know how quickly the results will be in if the vote is today. Uh, that will be another thing that we will be keeping an eye on tonight. Um, so it's going to be a big night in politics tonight. Um, you know, we've been talking about this uh, Robert Herr report the one where he was supposed to assess whether or not Biden had done anything inappropriate in his the way he handled his classified docs, whether there needed to be any charges brought. And the bottom line for the report was that there's no evidence that Biden did anything willfully. But the report, through its use of adjectives, pejorative adjectives for Biden, has created a just such an incredible controversy about Biden's age, because, you know, the report just should have been he did it. He didn't do it. We need charges. We don't need charges. Here's why. Here's why not. Instead, it goes into this description of Biden as some kind of feeble old man. (sighs) Andrew Weissman um, published an article in one of the legal newsletters, where he really took the whole report apart. And, you know, Alan Weissman was uh, one of the Mueller prosecutors. You would expect Alan Weiss, Andrew Weissman, I'm sorry, not Alan, Andrew Weissman, you'd expect him to come out this way. But you know who you wouldn't expect to condemn the H.E.R. report on the basis of what he's done over the last few years? Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz, who earlier in his career was a liberal crusader and has since become a friend of Trump and Giuliani and an apologist. I believe he was also a friend of Jeffrey Epstein. Hmm. Anywho, Alan Dershowitz in recent years has been a darling of Fox Cable. Alan Dershowitz was asked. About the her report, even Alan Dershowitz thought that this report was bad, was poorly done. This is on Fox Cable. Listen to Alan Dershowitz.
4: The report itself is a disaster on both respects. It was unfair to both sides. First, they got the law wrong. The kind of cognitive skills you need to be able to commit this crime are minimal cognitive skills, all biden had to know is that he did possess classified material and that he had no right to possess it you don't need a a a deep memory to do that so he was just wrong about the law he was also wrong about how trials are conducted how would the jury find out about uh about biden's bad memory biden would have to introduce it as a trial lawyer i would never have introduced that as a defense in this case So her was wrong. Her was also wrong in going as far as he went in trying to do a medical diagnosis of somebody who he hadn't examined medically or hadn't been examined medically. So, you know, I think this report is going to really cause us to think hard about the role of special counsel. He was wrong in everything he possibly could have done. He was wrong about not charging uh, Biden. Biden should have been charged or Trump should have been uh, his case dismissed. And he was wrong in going into kind of medical diagnoses that will have a political impact on the case. A D minus with great inflation for Mr. Hurd.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, he had to give a reason as to why he wasn't
6: going forward with any prosecution.
4: Well, but can you imagine if he had said, look, all the elements are there, but he's a really good looking guy and a charming guy. And I (laughs) don't think he's going to convict him. He's so charming. Or if he had said, look, he's black and the jury... Uh, in this district is, is is going to be predominantly black, so we're not going to charge. That's not what a special counsel is supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be lay, laying out the elements of the crime and not making predictions about how the jury will assess the evidence. That's up to the jury itself. So yeah. he went way beyond the scope of what he should have been doing.
1: Alan Dershowitz taking to task Robert Hur. He went way beyond the scope of what he should have been doing. I told you Andrew Weissman, who, of course, contributes on MSNBC, that he wrote um, uh, part of uh, half of a legal newsletter where he really, it's a little bit in the weeds, but he really takes apart this report, paragraph by paragraph, and really gives you an idea where Mr. Herr went off the rails. He didn't do that paragraph by paragraph analysis last night on the Lawrence O'Donnell show, but he did give us his thoughts on the her report listen to andrew weissman
5: we made it clear what the report found and what it didn't find um there was gross misreporting going on in major major outlets saying um making it sound like what rob Her found was that the current president actually willfully violated the law but just as a matter of prosecutorial discretion rob her was deciding that there shouldn't be a case that is wrong that is absolutely flatly contradicted um, what the report says is there is not a prosecutable case um, it repeats over and over and over again and we give quote after quote directly from the report um, that says that this there were innocent explanations that cannot be refuted and in fact There is evidence to support those innocent explanations. So as a former prosecutor, you know what that means when you look at a case and you say they're innocent explanations and I have evidence to support them and I cannot refute them. That's no case. Um, You do not go forward. Um, And so it's what we really wanted to do in writing this was to make sure that both the public knew, but also our colleagues in the press were getting the actual straight scoop. Now, to be fair, like you had to dig through the entire report and the, the executive summary is hard to parse, especially if you're not a lawyer. Um, but that's why we, the, with Ryan and I, who are both lawyers, we put this together so that people can see what is actually being said and what was actually found um, so that there's not this disinformation uh, that's out there.
1: So um, everybody seems to think this report sucks. And what amazes me is Robert Herr Yes, he's from the Federalist Society and he is a very conservative Republican and he should never have been given this job by Merrick Garland. Yes, these things are all true. But he can't he can't be a stupid guy. How did he not see that putting this report out would blow back on his abilities? Every cable channel. Even Fox is saying this guy blew it. How does how does this stand him in good stead? Is he trying to position himself as a Trump loyalist? Remember when Donald Trump was president and Bill Barr basically sent him a fanboy letter and uh, Trump liked what was in that letter? It was kind of like, oh, you're so right about everything. And that's how Bill Barr got to be the head of the DOJ. Is that what? where Robert Herr is going with this? That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Why else would you put your reputation on the line? I think this is Herr's audition to be the head of the DOJ should Donald Trump win the next election. And I got to tell you, kids, that... Um, Right now, we have what's shaping up to be a contest between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Neither of those candidates is perfect, but only one of those people wants to tear down the walls and create a dictatorship. And I don't care how many names Joe Biden gets wrong. He doesn't want to bring an end to democracy. There is... No world in which these two men face off against each other that we don't vote vote for Biden. Some people are saying, oh, he should step down. Well, you know what? The later this gets to toward Election Day, the less likely it is that either of them are going to be out of the race, whether Donald Trump is convicted and yeah, Donald Trump is convicted. He's a sexual assaulter and he's a fraudster, um, but he's likely the Republican nominee. Joe Biden is old and he is likely the Democratic nominee. That's what we've got. Doesn't matter what you wish was different. That's what we've got. And in the end, that's where our decision lies. Real quick, um, Before we wrap up, I want to share with you what Michael Steele said this morning on Morning Joe. Listen to Michael Steele.
0: The American people have to do a a lot of deep soul searching here, folks. Y'all got to get your heads out of wherever it is and understand what's in front of you. The man told you he wants to be a dictator. What the hell do you think that means? It's not that he's going to provide you with popcorn or that he's going to make life better for you. Dictators don't do that. Pick up a damn history book and read it and understand exactly what he's telling you he's going to do. And the people who are around him that are perpetuating this and that are pushing this out, they need to be unelected. Do not risk the future of your children and grandchildren to this stupidity. It's not worth it. We are better than this. Hmm.
1: Let's hope so. Michael Steele, former uh, Republican National Committee chair, now a virulent anti-Trumper who just speaks truth to power. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Suzanne Chaud is a political science professor at North Central College in Naperville uh, her area of expertise is women in american politics gender race and uh that's those are all really important things that we need to talk about as we get closer and closer to this big election we have in 2024 Suzanne thank you for being here oh thanks for having me Joan looking forward to it okay speaking of women in politics what do you think of where nikki haley is right now yeah, it's, what's been interesting to watch is uh, one of the things that she
6: has noted recently is that as Donald Trump's attacks on her, gendered attacks on her have increased, it shows that he's scared in some way that she's going to be able to come away with the nomination. And while I don't think that that's likely that she's going to win the nomination, it does show that he might see her as someone he needs to contain, which is not uncommon for when women run, that the people that run against them try to contain them and their power. And I think his gendered attack on her more recently um, over the weekend about where is her husband, um, talking about her appearance and such, just shows that um, he specifically sees women running against him as a threat um, and lashes out accordingly. And I think that she's handling it incredibly well. She's not going low, but she's definitely taking him to task and staying strong, um, which can be challenging to do when you're facing a bully.
1: Um, I- I've gotten a sense from some of the interviews she's done recently that she is enjoying the fact that she is getting under Donald Trump's skin there seems to be a a, a joy in her smile <laughs> that i have not seen yeah. before yeah yeah
6: she i think she enjoys the sparring and she feels like um You know, sort of the idea that like all like all press is good press and that negative attention. It's unfortunate that the way that she's getting some of this attention is through his attacks. But rather than withering, she's standing up to it and getting attention for it, you know, on SNL and and other places where, yeah, I think she's enjoying the fight. And in some ways, it really shows, particularly for a Republican woman, the toughness that often people think uh, is missing from women candidates. Um, I think that it's giving her some, um, some more airtime, which is something she needs. And she's absolutely, to your point, sort of enjoying it gleeful in it a bit, even though it's offensive. But she's making the best of it, which is all women can really do when they're running for office.
1: Mm-hmm. I was talking to a political consultant, or, or actually I think I was reading uh, the writing, and they said, you've got to remember that people – don't get out of the presidential race because they've come to the conclusion they can't win. They don't Mm -hmm. get out of the race uh, because they're tired of running. The only time they really walk away from a presidential campaign is if they run out of money. How much longer do you think Nikki Haley will be able to convince her donors to stick with Mm -hmm. her when it seems like, State after state, Donald Trump is crushing her.
6: This is what you know here, Joan, is exactly the problem she's facing. And while this this additional airtime is good for her because she's trying to shore up more donations, that, you know, we know that this month, for example, at the end of the month with the, with the South Carolina primary is going to be the big uh, test for her. We don't, of course, expect her to win her home state because of the way that it swings. Um, I, you know, she's... I think that it would not be surprising, based on how she shows in South Carolina, that she may not be able to make it further along than that. Now, of course, she wants to make it to Super Tuesday. That's the goal. Um, But she has to continue to convince her donors that – She's a she is someone they can bet on. And if the voters are not showing they're betting on her and it looks like the donors are betting on a losing horse, so to speak, to use that analogy, um, she's not going to be able to to go on for much longer. And then she has to decide how she exits the race Mm -hmm. and what she does next. And I think that's going to be her biggest consideration is how does she exit the race?
1: Chris Christie has been asked why he didn't endorse Nikki Haley when he dropped out of the race. And he may not he didn't use these exact words. But the gist of his reply was because uh, he believes that the minute she exits the race, she is going to endorse Donald Trump and that he's not going to support anybody who is willing to do that. Nikki Haley, for all of her attacks on Trump right now, I think it was Anna Navarro on The View that compared Nikki Haley to one of those balloon men that you see at car dealerships (laughs) with the the flippy hair and they flop this way and they flop that way. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that is a lot of what she has done. She has Mm -hmm. changed her position on issues Mm -hmm. more than once. And while I can't see her coming out and saying, I'm withdrawing from the race because Donald Trump is just better than me. I can see her saying I am dropping out of the race and I am going to support the Republican nominee because any Republican is better than Biden. I can see those words almost as a thought bubble over her head. And, you know, as much as I like to see her attacking Trump and getting under his skin, I basically don't think that this is a woman who has a very strong backbone, and I think she will capitulate Mm. to Trump. What do you see? Mm. How do you think she'll exit the race? Yeah, this is such an
6: interesting question. I I mean, to your point, she's not going to pull a Tim Scott, right? She's not going to pull out of the race, exit the race and then say, and now I'm going to go stump for him and endorse him. And, you know, I'm Uh going to do all of the things and, and try to jockey for a position in a potential cabinet because she's already worked in his administration before. So it's not like she has anything to gain by buddying up and cozying up next to him I think you're right what we might expect to say is that you know as she exits and her I can hear it in her speech where she Mm -hmm. talks about I wanted to provide an alternative to this person because I want to push the party forward but anyone in this party like you said Joan is better than the alternative but I don't see her going out and stumping for him and honestly, I don't think that he would want her to no I don't think think he would want her anywhere
1: near him she's not loyal right she's not loyal Suzanne That's right. How and dare that's the litmus got to get them. That's As right. opposed so to...
6: Really... Go, uh, go yes, ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, really, the question is, what does she do for the next four years?
1: As exactly. she buys her time some more. And she's mm-hmm. got yeah. to make sure she stays relevant for the next four years. Honestly, I think it's in her own best interest. Maybe, maybe it's not in her own best interest to endorse Biden, but mm-hmm. if Biden mm-hmm. wins... I think she is better positioned for 2028 than if Trump wins. What do you think?
6: Uh, Yeah, this is such an interesting question, because as the the research suggests that, um, you know, that it goes back and forth So whichever party controls the White House in the previous four years, the other party controls it in the subsequent four years. Or if a party holds for eight, definitely the next party holds it for four. And so. It, yes, if Trump wins and then he serves for four years, which is all he can do, then the likelihood of a Republican wins again, the research would suggest it would not be as great. And so if she wants to position herself for a truly open election, open primary, open seat race in 2028, then in some ways she should hope that Biden wins. And then yeah. in the interim in the interim four years, she needs to be an active voice in the Republican Party. You know, Rama McDaniel is most likely stepping down from RNC chair. I don't know that that's a place, maybe. <laughs> Haley wants to position herself, but to oh, work. No, no. Towards Didn't the you part- hear
1: um, Donald Trump wants a uh, Laura Trump to be head of the That's Republican right. National Committee? Yeah. I mean, and you know, that I makes forgot about that. It, it makes perfect sense because I think deep down, the only people he feels that he can really count on to be loyal is family. Yes. I mean, he's already talking yes. too about another role for uh, Jared and Ivanka. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. oh, my yes. God. Yes, and, and so where
6: is there room for detractors in a party that he has such a, a close, uh, a, um, a tight hold on, right, a tight grip on? And so obviously, there's no room there for Nikki Haley if Trump is president come January 2025. But if not, and she wants to make a play in 2028, she needs to find her voice in the Republican Party and be that front runner moving into 2028.
1: Yes, absolutely. And what do you think about that? Um I mean there was there was talk back when the Trumps were sort of um exiting stage right. Uh there was talk that Lara Trump might make a Senate run. That um yes. talk died away pretty quickly. But she has of I've got to say of all the Trumps out there, she's the one who seems most interested in politics. And I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe it's just if you compare With the rest of the family, she looks good, but she certainly seems to be the one most interested in politics, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she has Donald Trump's ear. Do you Mm -hmm. think she will be the next RNC chair? You know, I think it's a... I can understand to your point why
6: he would want to put someone of his own family in the party, right? It just sort of institutionalizes the Trumps as the Republican Party more than it already is. I think it's going to be a hard sell, to be honest, with the rest of the party to put someone in that position that um, has that last name, because not everyone in the party establishment wants Trump to be the person or the family to be the family that leads the party. But I think there'd be some pushback on um, her qualifications to lead a national party. Right. I think I again, I see why he has endorsed her and he wants her to be at the top. I would I think it would probably be better serving for everyone if she was part of the national party, but not the chairperson and then maybe work her way up to that. Um, But it screams nepotism in all of the ways that we have seen (laughs) the past, you know, since what was it, since 2015. And so I guess it's not surprising. But here's the thing is that this is where the party has to make a decision on whether they're going to be a gatekeeping institution, which is what they're designed to do, and set some boundaries for um, how to best run the party or if they're going to acquiesce and let, you know, let the leader of the party, so to speak, roll over them. And I think that that's like the existential question for the party right now.
1: Pat Brady, uh, former head of the Republican Party in Illinois, was a guest of mine last week. And he was actually getting ready to go to South Carolina to campaign uh, for Nikki Haley. He said that the Republican Party, in his opinion, no longer exists in any recognizable form. Rather, he calls it the party of Trump that he mm-hmm. has simply taken over every aspect of party life. Do you agree with mm-hmm. that? Is that what you see? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, when I, def- I see what he's saying,
6: and I think that there's some credence to that, because what we thought would happen when he won was that the party leaders in Congress and the state party chairs, the national party chair, would take the opportunity to teach the president to work alongside the president to um, revitalize the party after eight years of an Obama presidency and this new democratic party. And what they didn't account for was the fact that Trump had no interest in that at all. Right. That he wanted to do what he wanted to do. He wanted to buck norms and institutional forbearance and he wanted to create the party in his image. And what's happened now is that now other Republicans, electoral um Uh, whether they win, whether they lose, you know, how electorally viable they are rests on whether President Trump endorses them. not everywhere, but in a lot of places. And so as these things have collapsed together, you know, the the Republican Party of Reagan definitely no longer exists. And in some ways, the Republican Party of George W. Bush no longer still exists. And so the question is, if President Trump becomes president again in 2025, what happens to the party in that that four-year period? Do they continue on this path? where the party gets so far down the line that it's no longer recognizable at all? Or are there some guidelines, guardrails put in place that when 2028 comes around, the party could take a bit of a pivot back to where it came from? And I just don't know what that looks like.
1: I would like uh, to talk to you about the other high-profile woman in uh, politics right now, and that's Kamala Harris. Mm Mm-hmm. I, um, I think that she has not. As is often the case with a vice president, she has not been given an opportunity to really Mm -hmm. shine because the vice president isn't supposed to shine. I've had political experts say that the vice president's biggest role is to be the attack dog and to do Mm -hmm. the angry, nasty, say the angry, nasty things that the president has to be seen as being above. Well, who was it Mm -hmm. uh, years and years ago? There was there was um There was a guy in politics who compared the vice presidency to a warm bucket of spit. Um, I think that was in the 1800s. So it's never been a job where you really have this immense spotlight. Having said that, she is, if for no other reason than Joe Biden's age, she is going to get an inordinate amount of scrutiny in what she's doing now and um, mm-hmm. in whether or not she continues as Joe Biden's running mate, you mm-hmm. study women in politics. Is this a woman who hasn't been able to show her stuff or is yes. this a woman like I, I read in, from so many conservatives who hasn't risen to the challenge? <laughs> well, she is a
6: vice president. <laughs> and what you know at the beginning of what you just said is what vice presidents do. Now, what I will say, though, is that the past, you know, other than Mike Pence, maybe although he was out front a little bit more, we were used to, if we go back to a very active Dick Cheney and a particularly also active Vice President Joe Biden because of the optics of having the first black president and making sure that there was a steady white man next to him to make voters and and citizens more comfortable, right? Not that any of that, of course, is required, but we live in a country where that is something that they had to do. So now we have a more traditional arrangement where the vice president fades into the background, is given some projects, yes, has to run interference and does liaise with other organizations and parts of government, but isn't a person that is out front regularly. And so these attacks on on Vice President Harris are are very gendered and based in nature and that there's these unrealistic expectations of what they think she should be doing. And so they're telling her that she's not rising to this challenge. And so therefore she is ill-equipped and shouldn't be on the ticket anymore or should have never been on the ticket in the first place. Um, I think. You know, if she had a higher approval rating, then maybe Joe Biden would put her more out in front. But even still, how she's behaving is very, very typical for a vice president.
1: Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I think the one thing that got her that job might also be something that's hurting her. She if you look at her resume, I mean, this is a woman who's had a meteoric rise in, yeah. in political life. And, you know, unlike, you know, Joe Biden, when Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president, he'd been in the Senate for a very long time. He knew how mm-hmm. to work the system. He knew how mm-hmm. to get votes. He knew how to uh, twist arms. And, mm-hmm. you know, she was brand new to the Senate. She mm-hmm. the very thing hers. She's bright. She's well-spoken. She's, you know, gotten opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But at a certain point, when you're really looking at the big job, potentially, that resume can give some people pause because it starts to look a little thin, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and and people are always saying to me, well, look at Barack Obama. You know, his rise was meteoric, too. And I think there's some Mm -hmm. truth to that. But Barack Obama, even though he was African-American, he carried himself and spoke like every other successful male politician I've ever seen. You know, he exuded authority. Where, you know, Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris talks like a woman. She waves her hands around. She uses um, her full range of voice. She doesn't, you know, when I was media training and somebody was doing a really important speech, I used to tell them, especially if they're a woman, women have a tendency to use the whole range. We talk high Mm -hmm. and we talk low. And Mm -hmm. I said, if you want to come across as serious and authoritative, Get rid of that high range for this speech. Mm -hmm. I want you to keep Mm -hmm. your voice pitched down um, and and it carries a gravitas. And Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris talks um, like a woman and waves her hand (laughs) like a woman. And I think
6: those the worst possible things in the world. Oh,
1: my God. I know. (laughs) Yes. yes. But I think that's why her resume is going to be judged more harshly uh, than Barack Obama's resume. Yeah, yeah.
6: I mean, you, what the things you know, what I think are important is that while, of course, a minoritized person, being a black man, a, a black person in America, he, he still benefits from the patriarchy, right? He still um, commands authority in the room, although, albeit not like a white man does, of course, um, in a way that Kamala Harris is going to be suspect. And the research, to your point, Joan, about pitch of voice, the research in political science and in communication is very clear that um, when women speak. Um, they are not listened to or they are tuned out because of the pitch of their voice. Mm-hmm. And so, and as I sit here using the full range of my own voice and gesticulating in my office as we're having a conversation, uh, I realize that if I was on the campaign trail, I would not be taken seriously in the same way as my male colleagues. So um, already she is behind the eight ball because she is a woman and she is a person of color. And while she does have experience in California, she was not in the Senate for very long, mm-hmm. as you note. Know. And I will just add to this that So much of the conversation about her being chosen as vice president was that she was only chosen because she was a woman of color, not because she had any of the qualities Mm -hmm. or qualifications that would make her good at the job. And so she is suspect in so many ways to begin with that this uphill battle for her has gotten worse as we become more polarized, but has also gotten worse as there's been more questions over Joe Biden's ability to do the job.
1: Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was media training women, it forget about just using the full range i can't tell you how many women i talk to and i think this is a cultural thing where they would talk to me and every sentence would come up you know and i'm like you're not asking a question yeah. you know do you think we should talk about this you know how are you doing today and i'd be yes, like get I'll rid of talk. that yeah right here right now you are, you are using your voice to undermine yourself when you talk like this yeah i'm not sure what i'm saying yes.
6: it's it's true it's that we're we sound like we're questioning ourselves yes we are questioning ourselves right how could we know about how to rule the country or run a company or you know have any Mm -hmm. kind of role maybe outside the home
1: yes absolutely suzanne Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a caller jim who's been sitting on the phone lines for a while he wants very much to join our conversation uh jim go ahead you're on with professor chad and me
7: Hi,
8: the vice president. There were two brothers. One went off to sea. The other one became vice president. Neither one was heard from again. That's the <laughs> no, what's your vice president? you never heard from again. But what I was going to yeah. suggest is these Trump rallies. If you could, if you had the uh, wherewithal to sit through these rallies, what they're not reporting is is the vulgarity he uses, how off script he goes, how crazy he gets when he goes on for an hour, an hour and a half, where Joe Biden has a concise answer, a quick answer for everything. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, goes absolutely into bizarre world, and they don't report that. The media doesn't report how bizarre his thoughts are. When, he, when he's talking for yeah. an, hour, an hour. I heard, and a a, I heard he one says,
1: commentator, Jim, saying today, and I think it was a morning show guy on CNN. He said, you know, I watch Donald Trump's speeches. And yes, Joe Biden might, you know, forget a name or misspeak about which day of the week it is sometimes. He said, but when I watch these Trump speeches, there will be as much as 10 minutes of a speech where he literally doesn't make any sense. And Mm -hmm. where's the reporting on that?
6: Yes, it's such a good point to bring up. And this is I was actually having a conversation with my partner about this last week because he was having some concerns about, you know, mixing up the president of Egypt with the president of Mexico and all these things that came up last week. And what I said was, I think that unfortunately for President Biden, that. Because people feel like he his mental acuity is in question, and then they're looking at what President Trump is doing. It looks like what President Trump is doing, that he's totally, he's fine, right? That he's not having slip-ups, he's not going off script and sort of using language we don't quite understand or talking about the, the term debanking, that we're still not quite sure what that means. And But when you compare it to... How you know President Biden looks older, and he moves more slowly, and he's had some of these slip ups. That the focus is on that, as opposed to the fact that both of these men are well into their seventies and into their early eighties. And while I don't want to be ageist by any means, that you know we notice differences from when they first started, when they were running and serving until now. And I think if Joe Biden were either younger or were not making some of these mistakes, that maybe there would be some more focus on um, questioning President Trump's fitness as well.
1: Yeah, Um, I think that the coverage has been really skewed. I think so much of what Donald Trump does that should be front page news is not because we've gotten used to it. You know, he's worn us down it doesn't um it doesn't strike us the same way that it does if there's a gaffe on biden's part simply because um we're not used to it. but it's interesting i was talking to congressman joe walsh well former congressman joe walsh and he said to me you know i was in congress when you know joe biden was a senator he said joan I can tell you, he has always talked like this. He's always made <laughs> yeah. mistakes. He's always yeah. made goofs and gaffes. This is yeah. who he is. But, you know, yeah. most of the country, we're seeing it kind of for the first time. So for us, it yeah. seems like something new. And right
6: out and right out in front and right in the middle of an election, that seems to be the most pivotal in our history, which every election now in the past couple seems to be touted as that. Um, and I also will just note teaching Gen Z and I have Gen Alpha kids that they're looking at these, these men, first of all, but, and white men, second of all, but white men in their 70s and 80s, and they're not feeling connected to them at all. And they don't know Joe Biden when he was in the Senate or when he was vice president, right? uh-huh. especially Gen Alpha and young Gen Z. All they see is this 80-year-old man who's older than their grandparents, who they can't connect with, and they're frustrated. Like, is this the best we can get? Are these the candidates before us? And so in classes, we talk about why we have the two of them as our options. But if we don't want those to be our options, then we have to ask for something different.
1: Yeah. Um, There's so much more. I could... um, I could go on and on and on with you, Suzanne. <laughs> so Next time I. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Next time we have you on, we're going to have to book an hour because I have <laughs> questions and I have things to say. And I'm sure you do, oh too. Gosh. And I would love to hear them. Um, but I would love an hour, Joan. I look yes. forward to it. Okay. Um, I'm going to reach out to you or uh, Julia, who works with me on this show. We're going to reach out to you and get you back here. Because I think particularly... Great. The role of women, we've got Nikki Haley, we've got Kamala Harris, we've got Elise Stefanik, God help us, who looks right now like the vice presidential nominee leader. Um, There is so much to talk about um, when it comes to how gender is going to play out in 2024. And Professor Susan Chod from North Central College in Naperville, I hope you will return soon for an hour. I hope you will ask me. I look forward to it, Joan. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after this.
0: Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito,
1: live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On
0: WCPT 820.
1: I am very pleased to welcome back our good friend Rick Smith of the Rick Smith Show. Rick, how have you been? I am great, Joan.
7: I appreciate you taking some time for me.
1: Oh, I'm appreciate. I appreciate you taking the time for us. You, um, uh, you are always welcome on this show. I love talking to you. So. Um, I know you are still uh, doing your show in a slightly different form. What are the issues that you have been talking about recently, Rick? What are you focusing on? We we, we
7: spent a little time on the deep state bowl because it was fun. Um, (laughs) You know, as as President Biden pointed out, couldn't have planned it up, couldn't have drawn it up better than what they did. Uh, But mostly, look, you know, the the thing I don't think we're spending enough time on is, Trump's comments over the weekend about NATO, oh. uh, this, I, I mean, this is an enormous statement from a guy who <laughs> wants to be president. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, look, you know, we're about the same age, in, uh, in the same generation, at least. Uh, I don't know uh, if I could ever wrap my head around a, a president um, being this deeply embedded with, with the with the Russian I, I'm just I'm yeah. I'm beyond yeah. I'm beyond where I, I beyond words and then over the weekend you had you know this Schmucker Carlson do his whatever oh. that was. Uh, so I mean, you know, there's so much stuff going on, but for me, the just the heart and soul of, of this country. And yet, all I hear from the right is Joe Biden's old. I'm going, yeah. Oh. I, I think it's. A, I think we're in a moment though. It's pretty simple. I'll take the old guy who forgets something every once in a while over the guy who wants to destroy the foundation of this nation. I think it's pretty simple. I I I, I don't know how how else you can frame that. How much simpler it can be.
1: Yeah. Um, I, the former Russian ambassador, I, I think it was, um, what's his name? Michael McFall was on, um, I, I think it was MSNBC on a couple of the different shows and referring to Trump's remarks. And for those of you who didn't hear it, basically bottom lining it. Uh, he said that if if he's elected president, he's going to pull us out of NATO again and. And, uh, he views NATO as some kind of, um, like private club because of the members of NATO who aren't paying their fair share. If Vladimir Putin wants to invade them, he's going to say, just do it. Go ahead, invade them. You know, go do whatever the hell you want. I believe is a close, close Did to a quote. direct quote on that. Yeah. Um, And he said, he said, and I thought this was fascinating. He said, if I were the people of Poland, I would be very, very frightened right now, because if Vladimir Putin runs through Ukraine and takes it over, um, Donald Trump, as much as said, you want to go after one of these NATO countries, go ahead. I won't stop you. And there have been comments made just as he tried to delegitimize Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is now making similar comments about Poland. It is. Yep. We. I feel like if we're not careful, we are going to stumble into World War Three.
7: But here's the thing, and this is where this is where my mind has been. Uh, am I surprised that Donald Trump said this? Am I surprised that he has this shakedown world view? No, not even a little bit. Uh, nothing that that man can say would shock me. What is surprising, what is shocking to me, is the people that I I, I work with, my neighbors, who are good, decent, hardworking people who support this guy. That's my problem. When Mm -hmm. did we lose our collective minds? Uh, When is it when, you know, um, when did we, when did did I miss my cult member card or or what? Any of these comments to any politician at any point in our lifetime— any one of the, the thousands of things Trump has said would be a career ender, but it seems, and this is the weird part, because I had I had people emailing me say, "Well, you know, you know, Putin should be able to do what he wants within his borders," and this kind of this kind of you know isolationist mentality that they're pushing. Um, we've seen this movie before. Uh, it didn't go well. Uh, it ended with a, with a bombing of, of some of our of our, our warplanes over in Hawaii. It was it was bad. It was really bad. Yeah. And you know, I see. I saw a sign on social media that says, "If you were wondering what the German people were doing uh, as Hitler was rising, um, you're doing it." Yeah, exactly. And, and that's. <laughs> That's the scary part of where we are, because, look, am I surprised that Trump does any of this crazy stuff to get attention or or any of his bizarre beliefs? No, he's an idiot. He's a moron. Problem is, the people who are voting for him and there will be millions of people showing up to enthusiastically support this guy. That's what frightens me.
1: Yeah. And I get that there is a certain core group that really views him religiously i mean it doesn't matter what he says he could say the sky is green Mm -hmm. and they'll be like well that's okay um you know i've seen interviews where they're asked about him being a dictator and people say things like well he should be we need a strong man and you know yeah you know maybe we need a dictator right now those people are lost they are simply lost to us but as you and i both know that's those people aren't Uh, alive in sufficient numbers to get him elected, there is going to be this other middle group here that decides what Biden's too old. So I'm going to vote for Trump. I don't. Or, you know, as I've heard some people say, oh, Biden, what has Biden done for me? Well, hello. Have you paid attention to the economy? I heard a very well-educated, white suburban couple very recently in my area say that they're going to be voting for donald trump because um he's really good for the economy and if joe biden gets a second term we're going to have a recession because he can't handle the economy hello did did you look at the economy under trump did you look at the economy under biden and i know when i hear this I think there's a lot of people who aren't the real rabid supporters, but they absorb all of the Fox cable talking points. They absorb them. They cannot be. And because the facts, you know, spend some time not just listening to what Brian Kilmeade says, spend some time looking at what economists are saying. You know what the general accounting office is saying, what the jobs numbers are saying, for God's sake.
7: Yeah, I mean it's going to get better as this the summer comes around as we move into election season as a lot of the programs and the money starts flowing into communities uh the number of factories starts in this country is at almost a historic number uh the construction work that's being done my building trades friends are all you know they're they're all fully employed there's there's all mm-hmm. of this activity happening it's just got to be well Something that people are told about, and we've got a corporate-controlled mainstream media that's not interested. They're not interested in, in, in good stuff. They're not interested in what the administration is actually doing. They're interested in that. You know, did you know? Maybe you've heard this, John, but um, Joe Biden's old. Have you heard that?
9: Uh, I've heard uh, a Joe rumor Biden's old, to that effect, the other but... guy.
7: Mm-hmm. Now, the other guy, have you ever watched one of his speeches uh, while entertaining and in a two-hour song and dance and, and clown show? Have you, have you seen him ramble on aimlessly for a couple hours where people are enthralled? But very few people are going, have you actually listened to the craziness coming out of this guy's mouth, Amen. out of this dithering old dude's mouth? Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. You know, we're going to go after Biden for being old, but not, not Trump.
9: Yeah, and um, we're going to go I, I, after sorry, Biden I,
1: I, for um, um, mixing up a couple of names, and we're not going to – I yep. played a soundbite, which I try not to do. I try not to play any Trump. I don't want to amplify any of his stuff. But somebody put together a montage, and oh, my God, it probably went on for two minutes, of just the most recent gaffes of the last few weeks. He's still convinced yep. he ran against Obama. Um he can't say certain <laughs> words, and he keeps trying to say them. And especially, you know, Elise Stepanik and that actor he really likes, Jim Kav- Um I mean, it was a minute or two of gaffe after gaff after gaffe, and just one of those gaffes would put Joe Biden on the front page of the New York Times for a week. And it's just yeah. You not remember right. that
7: guy. Remember that guy a bunch of years ago who screamed funny because he was, he was campaigning, lost his voice, and he was out mm-hmm. because he screamed funny? Mm-hmm. Uh, remember Howard Dean's campaign? He said, wow, and that was the mm-hmm. end of it. Uh, you now have this guy? It's, it's amazing. But here's the thing. Again, I come back to the main point. Uh, The main point is I don't want to get into ageism. I don't want to get into, oh, he's too old. Because, look, the reality is is Biden's an old dude. Uh, He's going to forget things every now and again. Uh, But what I like about Joe Biden... Is what he has done, the people he has put into positions uh, of regulatory oversight—the head of the Department of Labor, the head of uh, the NLRB, uh, the, you know, the, the, trade, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, our trade representatives—I can go down the list of all the people. I'm thrilled that are in in positions of, of authority and helping us move this country forward. For me, that's that's the that's the big conversation. Yeah. Uh, Biden has assembled a team that is highly qualified that is moving this country in a in a positive direction and in a new direction. You know, this is the thing that I think nobody's talking about. Th- this guy is moving us towards the end of neoliberalism, uh, the end of the free trade regimes, the end of, of, you know, hey, we're going to give the rich people all they want. Here is a president actually talking about working people, actually found Obama's comfortable shoes and got out on a picket line. <laughs> this is a guy who's actually done done some, some walking along with the talking. And I think that's the important part of all this for working people to understand this is a guy who uh, as I call him it's jelly bucket Joe. this is a guy who understands what it's like uh to punch a clock and to, and to work and and struggle and all of that and I'm again struck by you've got people who are Truly struggling in this economy and have been for decades, siding with a billionaire who doesn't pay his bills, cheats working people at every opportunity, and cheats and says, hey, I don't pay taxes because I'm smart, and they love him for it, which is, I don't know, bizarre.
1: Yep. Yep. I I see the same thing. I see the same thing you do. Um, Rick, the phone lines, not surprisingly, have lit up while you've been on. Uh, let's take a couple of calls. Donald is calling in from Chicago. Uh, Donald, you're on with me and the famous Rick Smith. Please go ahead.
7: <laughs> yeah, I just have another way of looking at the border crisis. Um, I've heard numbers from anywhere from seven million to, 12 million people have come across in the last few years. So let's look at the smaller number. Let's say it's only 7 million. And we've got to get these people work permits and everything so they can work, which I think is a great thing. But then we're looking. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not shovel-ready jobs. So it's going to take a couple of years. So for a couple of years, you have 7 million people basically
9: on the welfare system.
1: No, that's not true. There are ready jobs right now. Look at how many restaurants aren't open all week long, there's... Immigrants traditionally start off at the bottom rungs of our jobs in society, and there are tons of those jobs available. The idea that they're going to be sitting around for two years on welfare, they may be sitting around for two years because they can't get a court date. That I will definitely agree with you on because the system is moving so slowly and needs to be expanded. But as long as the they have the ability to get a work permit, There's nothing stopping them from uh, getting a job right away.
7: Well, I disagree with you on that because I don't. Well, you're wrong, Donald. I mean, it's just this
1: isn't an opinion thing. This is a fact thing. Uh, Andy, let's end this right now. I don't. I don't mind if somebody disagrees with me, but you're not going to come on this radio show and say things that aren't true, particularly Republican talking points that are not true. Okay, let's go back to the phone lines. Paul's calling in from Seattle, and he knows that if he doesn't uh, walk the walk and talk the talk, I'm going to smack him. Hello, Paul. You're on with me and Rick Smith.
10: <laughs> Get you <to> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here, here's my comment. How many times during the Iran-Contra hearings did Ronald Reagan say, well, I don't recall? Mm -hmm. I think during questioning, it was his number one answer, if not the only response he gave to questioning. He never gave a yes, no answer. How many times did 34-year-old White House counsel John Dean say, not to the best of my recollection at this point in time, during the Watergate hearings, it was the phrase of the summer of 1973, but somehow Joe Biden's memory is an issue now, even though uh, his opponent is a convicted rapist and proven fraudster uh, who has 91 criminal counts in front of him yet to account for. But here's the thing about memory, and this is what I think Robert Hurd did. I have a, I know a lot about memory. My graduate work was in counseling psychology, and I took a lot of cognitive psychology. And I actually have a very, very good memory myself, which I developed, I think, because I, I was losing my eyesight as a child. But memory is something that you you remember things, it's mostly about retrieval. Everything's in your mind. Retrieving it is a matter of actually concepts. So little details, fragment details, oh, you can only remember them as part of a concept. So if somebody asks you a question that's unrelated to what you're thinking about, the detail you may not get. In fact, this, uh, this is a, a, a something they've proven that will happen. And even if I told you this, if I can get you to say a word that rhymes with stop three times like shop, cop, Drop. And then I ask you, what do you do when you come to a green light? You will say, stop. They know even if you know it's coming. And so if you were to ask somebody a question like that and say, if Robert Hurd would ask, Joe Biden thinks when you come to a green light, you stop. He's demented. You mm-hmm. see, he could set him up by asking him a, a way off question because President Biden is thinking about the concepts of these documents. And then you would ask him a, a completely unrelated question. When did your son die? He's trying to scan that, date to me, related to the document. The fact and that he asked
1: with, Yeah, the fact that he asked that, Paul, um mm-hmm. to me is a super, super, super red flag. And yeah. instead of just saying, you know, you know, what I would have said, which would have been something very emphatic and probably rude, Biden just, you know, uh, um, gave him a non-answer, you know, um, right. and then it was like, oh, he doesn't know when his son died. And and Biden said later, you know, that was none of his damn business.
10: Right. But what I'm saying is that Robert Hurt, as a questioner, as an experienced questioner, probably knows that you can you can pose questions in such a way that make the person who's answering it yeah. look like they're stodgy. And uh, that's something that you can do. I've learned that from from cognitive, cognitive psychology, that, and they know that from testing people. Like I said, they have done tests like the cop, stop, drop. You will say stop, even if you know that the, you're getting set up like that. They've, they've, they know that a certain percentage of time, even people who know it's coming will still say, what do you do at a green light? and stop. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just part of our, it's, it's just one of those funny things about our, our psychology. And so, like I say, no one cared. As a matter of fact, the Republicans went out of their minds. After Ronald Reagan was in Iran-Contra, and people suggested that perhaps the president may be developing Alzheimer's, they went crazy when Ronald Reagan Jr. acknowledged that the family knew he had Alzheimer's towards the end of his first term. I met Ron Reagan Jr. and he said, "Yeah, we knew he, we knew that he dad was uh, was developing Alzheimer's. He had Alzheimer's all the way through his second term, and yet." It was considered so disrespectfully, we even mm-hmm. suggest that the president, you see, and now look where we've gone in 40 Well, you know, we Paul, I, I want to get years. Rick
1: in on this conversation because Paul makes a good point. Not only was Ronald Reagan really uh, protected, but, you know, I mean, does anybody remember, um, is it just because I'm old, that I remember Strom Thurmond? I mean, he was <laughs> barely functional toward the end. Strom, push this button. Yeah. This is how you're voting today. I mean... This is, and this is, not, we're not talking about a guy who mistook a one president for another. I mean, we're talking about you know a guy who was barely functional. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, we've seen this with our legislators time and time and time again. And
7: yeah, but here's my problem with all this, Joan. With, uh, this whole conversation is that we're we're playing right into that frame. You know, we're we're justifying him being old. Uh, yeah, the guy's an elder statesman, and with that comes some positive things. Uh, I think the fact that Joe Biden is in the White House right now is a perfect time for him to be there because he's the calm, the sanity, the reason that we need it in a moment of crisis. Uh, So for me, the idea that we're going to we're going to argue right wing talking points and justify, I got to tell you, this this plays into what they do masterfully, and that is set the narrative of the tone right now. Joe Biden is the right guy for the time. He has done some great stuff legislatively, one of the one of the most productive, presidents of my lifetime, uh, that's what we should be talking about. Uh, you know, as, as, as productive as Reagan was in destroying this country, Joe Biden has been in rebuilding us. For me, that's the frame that I think i think Democrats need to pick up on. Uh, the frame, as I said at the beginning, you got to forget something. I forget things every once in a while. Um, it's between a guy who forgets stuff occasionally and a guy who wants to destroy humanity, a guy who wants to tear the fabric of this country apart, a guy who wants to pull us out of NATO and and let Russia get the old gang gang back together. That's what we need to be talking about.
1: I agree with you 100%. Um, And and part of, I don't know if you saw it, I watched The Daily Show last night. It was Jon Stewart's Big Return. And... My came away. You know, you want to make fun of the candidates, fine. That's what it's all about. But I felt that he was. It was whataboutism. He did not differentiate in my mind between Trump and Biden. It was like, yeah, they're both old white guys. We need to get rid of both of them. And that was the message over and over and over again. And I was deeply, deeply disappointed that he didn't seem to be able to look past that to what is really at stake here. I mean, he's a voice, you know, um, maybe young people don't aren't going to pay as much attention to him as as those of us who knew him in his previous iteration. But what I saw last night, I was deeply disappointed with this equivalency between Trump and Biden, and they could not be more different
10: yeah, but here's the, for
7: me, the thing is, I embrace the fact of the guys the guys getting up in here. We used to, you know. I am, again, I think we're around the same neighborhood of age-wise. Uh, we used to respect uh, our elders. We used to respect wisdom and, and experience. Uh, you know, we're now making it okay to tear all that apart. And and look, you know, there is the, – you know, and I think Democrats do have to own the fact that, you know, Biden's getting a little bit older. He's just slowing in his steps, uh, slowing in his thinking a little bit. But that doesn't mean that he still can't do the job. Uh, and I go back to what I said, the most productive president of my lifetime. Yep. Yep. Let that sink in. The most productive, the biggest job creator, yes. uh, someone who is policy-wise moving us in a in a much better direction as far as trade, an infrastructure policy, a manufacturing policy. We're creating manufacturing jobs. The idea that we're not going to continue on what the the neoliberal uh, supply-side voodoo Reaganomic path got us into—that for me is a big freaking deal.
1: Yeah. It is a it is a big freaking deal. And I like it. You know, I don't know how you feel about this. I like it when Biden acknowledges it, you know, that that statement he made recently where he was like, um, you know, this happened. And, well, I remember it. You know, I'm old. You know, I've been around for a while. You do know that. Right. And this happened. And I remember that. You know, I remember that. Yeah, that's the answer. The answer to
7: all this is, is what, what exactly what, what Biden did with that su- Super Bowl tweet, uh, with the picture of him and the dark Brandon face with just like we drew it up. Yep. Uh, I mean, at some point, you have to acknowledge that the other side has nothing to run on. Uh, you had somebody a caller a moment ago talk about the border. What have Republicans done to help? Solve our problem at the border, other than create an environment to make it worse, other than the Come On Say the the, the deal that that Republicans wanted and James Langford delivered. Um, they're going to vote against because Trump, who did not read the bill said no. The Oklahoma Republican Party, who did not read the bill, censured James Langford. Look, I'm no James Langford fan. But the fact of the matter is, this guy said, here's a moment where we're in crisis, we need to do something, and came out with a piece of legislation. Whether you or I agree with it or not, the guy was doing his job. And to have the entire Republican establishment turn on him for doing his job is quite remarkable, And then to turn around and say, look, you know, it's a crisis. Understand (laughs) what Republicans learned about understand what Republicans learned about abortion. They they learned, oops, we can't let the dog catch the car again. The issue is more important than the solution. We need people to be outraged. We need crisis because we don't have a policy agenda. We don't have anything that we're going to take to the American people and go, hey, look what we've done for you. Look at this legislative session of the House. They have been in control this, this, this whole session, and what have they passed? Not even any, any conservative messaging bills. I mean, at least when Democrats get in power, they, they pass a minimum wage bill that they know is going to die in the Senate, or they pass some things that on a messaging front at least gets the base going, hey, they're, they're doing something. Republicans can't even get that done, yeah, which is I agree. Quite, quite remarkable, given yeah. the money that goes into their pockets.
1: Rick Smith, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. Let's not wait so long before we do it again. Rick Smith, The Rick Smith Show. Thanks for being here.
7: Anytime, Joan. Love you.
1: Thank you. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with um, a lot more after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820.
1: We have had a Very passionate. (laughs) We've had a very passionate start to today. There has been much shouting and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Hopefully, that will not continue uh, because we are going to be talking right now to one of our favorite Chicagoans, Tony Fitzpatrick. Uh, Hopefully, in uh, a few minutes, we're going to be joined. By uh, John Langford, also uh, one of Tony's friends, John Langford, you might remember from the of uh, The two of them have a show coming up that we're going to be talking about. Plus, we always like to have uh, Tony on to uh, to talk politics. Hello, Mister Fitzpatrick. How are you?
11: I'm okay. How are you?
1: I'm groovy today. Um, um.
11: Feather <laughs> there. What? You were working up quite a lather there with the political talk. I was was pulling for you.
1: Why, uh, thank you. You know, I have, and I've said this before, and people who listen to this show all the time know, I don't care if a caller disagrees with me, if they have a different point of view. Where the line is for me is I'm not going to let people use these airwaves to say things that aren't true. And every time somebody does that, I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to have Andy drop the call because these airwaves are very precious and they're very important. And we are the station where we always say facts matter. We are not Fox. We're not Newsmax. We're not here just to spin everything. And, you know, you want to disagree with me about how things are going at the border. Let's have that talk. But. To sit here and spout Republican talking points that aren't true. I'm not Kristen Welker. I'm not going to sit back and let you say a bunch of things that aren't true and then throw to a commercial break. You know, I'm going to I'm going to call I'm going to call nonsense. I was or or even a worse word. Um, <laughs>
11: that kind of a thing. You know, people are entitled to their own opinions. They're not entitled to their own facts. Amen. And uh, and this is what uh, you know. The dark side uh, uh, tries to do constantly. Yep. Um, it's like stay enough of times, and it becomes the truth. You know, they think it is some uh, self fulfilling prophecy.
1: Well, you know, and it it really bothers me. I think, I think as much as I don't like Donald Trump. And all that he represents, if you had to get me to say who is the single person who has damaged our country the most, a person alive today, I would say the answer to that question without a moment's hesitation is Rupert Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, who, um, you know, I mean, when and even people who watch Fox should have had their eyes opened when the texts and the emails were made public during the Dominion voting machine case, which Fox lost almost a billion dollars on that one. And it was shown that all of your famous favorite hosts, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, they were going on the air on a daily basis and lying to their audience. And I. I think he I don't know whether he hates the United States or whether he hates democracy or whether he is just such a sociopath that all that matters is money and profit and the rest of the world be damned. If we're stupid enough to believe it, we deserve what we get. I don't know what goes through his mind, but he has done far more damage to the United States of America than Donald Trump has done on his worst day.
11: Absolutely. You know, what he wants to do is control consensus. You know, uh, he bought so much media, Joan. I mean, he, he bought uh, an, an ungodly percentage of American media. It isn't only Fox News, it's newspapers, um, uh, broadcast services, things all, you know, nationwide. And uh, he's had a hand in all of it. Yep. And what they to do is was, was this you know Reagan era style of controlling the message constantly and controlling consensus. Um, yeah, I think he's been an absolute uh, uh, disaster for our country. You know, I, he's just this interloper from Australia, just um, and made mincemeat out of our institutions. I mean, we used to have. Newspapers that had news bureaus all over the world.
1: Yep, even we the Tribune. Huh.
11: Absolutely. Um, we, we, you know, there used to be a wide variance of news sources, and we don't have them anymore. And that is, a, 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 you know, this is a clarion call for um, breaking up this idea that uh, these, you know, conglomerates can buy more and more media and do with yeah. it,
1: whatever. want. and we used, used to, be, you know, that used to be illegal. We used to have the fairness doctrine, which has been gotten rid yeah. of. We used to have guardrails so that this kind of thing couldn't happen, and we've dismantled them all. Uh, you know, and now we we live with the consequences. And I really hope that if we get a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House and a Democratic President, that one of the things that they look at. Is putting some of these guardrails back in back in place. Hey, uh, Tony. Uh, Andy says John Langford is with us. John, are you there?
8: I am. Hello.
1: Hello. Welcome. Thanks for being here today.
8: That's so strange because I hear it coming through the coming through the wall because my <laughs> guy in the next studio to me has the radio on.
1: Oh my god! Been listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I yeah. want to say. So i
8: going to say hello, Walter. Hello, yeah. Walter. He's
9: next door. I...
1: I want to say to both of you guys how much I enjoyed the Lynn Bramer tribute that the two of you put together uh, a while back at the hideout. It was
11: Cinderella Blackbirds. yeah. It was
1: wonderful. It was wonderful and moving. And, man, I just I wish Lynn could have been there. He really would have enjoyed it.
8: Yeah, that all spilled out of some Christmas parties we used to have when we used to kind of read poetry and read Dylan Thomas together. I mean, D- Lynn would read uh, Charles Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas every year to a load of, you know, a load of people. Tony would read some depressing poems. He'd be good. <laughs> <laughs>
9: yeah,
8: and, uh, I, I remember Christmas, the Christmas in prison and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs>
9: no,
8: I... Uh, I uh, yeah, Lynn, Lynn, would, Lynn would turn up, you know... Uh, usually in a tuxedo looking rather disheveled at about midnight. And we'd be like, all right, we're going to do it now? Okay, we're going to do Dylan Thomas's Child Christmas in Wales. So.
11: Yeah. yeah. Um, Did you- Cinderella Blackford, absolutely what he was due. I mean, it was just such a uh, shattering kind of loss both for John and me. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. He was, uh, you know, Lynn was not only your best friend in the whole world, He was always your advocate. He was always on your side. And he always went far out of his way to shine a light on you whenever you had anything going. He was just uh, such a dear friend. The city never had a better friend. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when, if I I had an art show, all the Mekongs were playing in town. They had one
8: song in the computer that was a Waco Brothers song they could play. So. (laughs) <laughs> talk about me for talk about me for twenty minutes, and then go. Uh, John Light will be here with the Mekons. He's uh, the Wiggle Brothers. Because <laughs> that was the only song they were allowed to play on the corporate computer. But, uh...
1: so tell me, guys, yeah. about this show that you guys are doing together.
11: Well, this is John's uh, show. This is uh, the John show. It opens Friday night. Um, my first show host... I ever did in oh, Chicago. Chicago, Sorry. Keep going, Tony. I've been wanting to host this show for a very long time since I've had the dime. Um, John had his first uh, American art show at World Tattoo, my gallery. That uh, was it, thirty-five years ago. Nineteen? Uh, no, it's thirty years ago. It was nineteen
8: ninety-three. Yeah. That World War Two on South Warbush, and you you came up to me in the metro and you'd seen an illustration I did for New City because I was trying to scratch a living in town doing illustrations and stuff like that, and I'd never had a proper art show, and you said you should do some etchings, and I went oh I should do that, he was like come <laughs> up do <to> my etchings, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I went and worked at Tony's studio. I don't know, for about six months, and then we had a show at The World Tattoo, and uh, I think I sold everything, and it unleashed, uh, I don't know, a kind of new career path for me, which I don't just have to be a punk rocker forever. I can can be an artist, and that was very
9: uh,
11: eye-opening. Well, my goal was, John, to include you in that club of friends of mine that We've never done an honest day's work in our life. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Cool. You know, waking up early, not for me. <laughs>
1: oh my god! Um, so how many so um, course, how many uh, pieces? How many pieces do you have, John? What will we be seeing? Uh, I think it's, about, sort of, it's
8: a mixture of uh, new paintings, a couple of chestnuts, and a couple of. A few prints, so it'll be. Uh, I don't know, but it's, it's, I actually really thought about that first show, and I thought about how I prepared for that first show, and I thought about you know what I was trying to do at that time, and some of the things that I kind of did then, and I kind of abandoned, and I sort of went back to them. You know, there's a lot of gold paint and a lot of um, crudely made wooden frames and a lot of uh, skulls.
11: <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's not a lancroft show unless there are skulls. Um, yeah, is, when Tony
8: but asked me to do that art show, I just, I went on tour with the my I stumbled around um, Europe going to every kind of medieval section. I don't know why, but I ended up Every major city, every big art gallery, big art museum, I would just end up in the... That was what spoke to me at the time. And I was fascinated with American culture and country music, but it seemed to have all these parallels with um, sort of these crazy, morbid Catholic images and, you know, gold altars and shrines. And it was... uh, I don't know, I thought... I wanted to make a shrine for Hank Williams, basically. So that was the... uh, that was my favorite
11: Saint Hank was my was my hero at the time. So John, okay, there's no short birds no in the show either. Uh John has done some amazing things of roadrunners and cuckoos and you know, cowboys and stuff. I mean they're just incredible. Uh I mean, John, I just got one shipment of it from uh from uh Yard Dog that it just showed up here. We just signed for it. Oh, the oh, the box um, is there? Great. The box got here, sure. yeah. So it's gonna, I like you know, It's going to lo- be a marvelous show. And uh, they basically threatened to bring their instruments and, and uh, kind of turn it into a natty. And oh, across the it. hall is uh I'm Tim's volunteered herself. Okay. Well, we, we, we cannot turn that down. You know, OK, the, clearly the
1: party is Something getting that, bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger as we speak. So um we're going to take a break when we come back, guys. I want to make sure that our audience knows exactly when and where and what's going to be happening. we got to give them um, all the details. I'm talking with uh, John Langford of the Mekons and uh, my beloved Tony Fitzpatrick. We'll be back after this.
0: Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty.
1: I'm joined by John Langford of the Mekons and Tony Fitzpatrick, and Tony is going to be um, hosting a, a John uh, Langford art show at his at his gallery. Okay, uh, Tony, give us the where, the when, the how.
11: It is the dime. It is 1513 Northwestern Avenue. That's 1513 Northwestern Avenue. Plenty of parking. <laughs> you say that every time you, you, you have a show in a sketchy neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> it starts at, uh, at 6 o'clock and go till 9, although people usually show up way before that, around 5. And uh, there is. Beer by Forbidden Root, wine by Door twenty four, and cider uh by Virtue Cider. Our friend Greg Hall donated a the bunch next of cider.
1: And it is this Friday, is it not?
11: It is Friday night. And, yeah.
1: Yes.
9: Absolutely.
1: And um John, um you've never been to my house, so you um don't realize I that- have
8: not. Why is that?
1: I I well because this year I didn't have my big uh, holiday party uh, but it'll be back next year and you'll be you'll be on, be on the list but my house is uh, mostly a shrine to the art of Tony Fitzpatrick I defy you to find a room or a hallway that doesn't have a Tony Fitzpatrick piece but Tony Tony really knows uh, my partner Ray McKenzie very well Ray just texted me apparently we own a John Langford piece <laughs>
9: Um, you too? Is it the yeah. bathroom?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I, I, I'm not quite sure where, where we have it hanging, but I promise you, uh, this coming holiday season, it will be in a place of prominence. Apparently, John, you and Sally Timms played a fundraiser 13 years ago for an organization Ray is on the board for, and that's Also. Yeah, that's, um,
8: uh, it was at the... Uh, at the city winery i remember you remember something
1: from 13 years ago
8: yeah no there was some friend of mine who was involved in that organization it was a, it was all about prosthetic limbs yeah. i believe yeah yeah i remember that
1: um well first I remember of all some things. i'm impressed <laughs> i'm impressed as as tony will tell you i have trouble with things from 13 hours ago um
9: <laughs> exactly so,
1: yeah, but um, but uh, that was um, that was apparently uh, something that also um, was very very grateful that you did um, for City Winery in Chicago. And um, how long have you been making art? I mean, if I own a piece of yours, it has. I'm old, John. It must have been. You must have been doing this for a while. Well, I said the first show I
8: ever had was with Tony in uh, '93. So. I mean, what I did was I was a punk, punk rocker at art college and the Sex pistols came around and played and we all threw our paintbrushes away and concentrated on making, you know, music that would annoy our parents and
9: succeeded. <laughs> uh,
1: and, and that I was just, kind of it. I just got a note from Andy Miles, our board operator, that he saw you in 1996 he said, "You guys were at Fitzgerald's. It was while the uh, yeah. it was when the DNC was in Chicago."
8: I remember that night as well. That was a yeah. I ended up somehow. I ended up with uh, I forget some journalist mate of mine. I think it was Margarino was at the convention, and I ended up with a big giant press pass that I wore for the whole gig. So I looked I looked like a delegate. So.
1: <laughs> a punk rock delegate, John?
8: Yes, yeah, ex- exactly.
1: Huh. <laughs> Interesting. And and they actually, like, let you wander the floor.
8: Yeah, they wouldn't let me. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've had my tangles with politicians. I've had a few tangles with them, but they don't let me do much.
1: Do you so, get involved you know, in politics, John? Uh,
8: I, I would say that musically, um, all my lyrics are pretty political. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the the one thing I couldn't really we couldn't really separate politics from real life when we started playing music. The first wave of punk rock was it was really politicized, and it was out of necessity really because there was at that time there was so much racism on the streets of you know Northern England where we we were based, and uh, we were involved with Rock Against Racism, and, and then from that I think we went to the did stuff for the for, um the my coal mining strike, then into the AIDS thing, then into uh when I moved over here, I was quite shocked by the you know the death penalty thing. So me and Tony have done quite a bit of stuff for that with Steve Earl and a lot of other people we got, got on board for that. But yeah. My, yeah. I can't see where I can't see where the music ends in the you know, the politics ends It's 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 a very uh They're very mixed up with each other. I mean, culture, that's culture. It's culture, isn't it? I don't like culture that's escapist and removed from the real world. I like culture that deals with what's going
9: on.
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons I like politics is because, to me, the, the best definition for politics is life and human interaction on a small scale and a large scale. I mean... Um, that's why I I like to me talking about politics is talking about people and talking about how people treat one another and you know the rules that they all agree to on how we're going to be a fair and just society. To me, that's that's politics. And then I invite Tony on because he just gets really mad.
11: <laughs> well, the one thing that both John and I realized when we met was that. To be an artist in in the nineteen nineties, we didn't have the luxury of not having politics. You had to speak yeah. to the condition of the world around you, and it's your duty yeah, as an artist.
1: And, and you guys both um, still do, do that think, with you your know, art
11: now. It's like this
8: isn't a time. This is a time I never really envisioned what's going on now. So yeah. You know. Uh, I think we need we need people uh, to be speaking up and addressing the real world and not just like join, joining the sort of capitalist entertainment bandwagon you know.
11: Uh, never has our job been more necessary than now. Yeah, I would say.
1: I definitely agree with that and when people come to the show John and they look at your work is there a feeling you want them to feel? Is there an idea you want them to take from your show?
8: Um, I would. There's a lot of quotes from lyrics from the songs in the paintings, and I think it's... And, and other, and other fam- more famous songs, but I, uh, I like the idea that they're, they're kind of mysterious, but they're also kind of... You can tell that they're... I don't know, they they're so critical or sympathetic to certain characters. and um, Hard to explain, but I'm looking and at them I'm now. Sure. They're pretty depressing. Yeah. some <laughs> all my songs.
1: <laughs> well, there's an, an advertisement they're all, they're for the show. Looking, Come see John Langford's new stuff. It's pretty depressing.
8: Yeah, it really is. No, no, I, I, I like it. It's... Uh, it's I'm getting brighter with my colors. There's a lot of gold. There's some nice... I like... uh, To me, it's kind of like everything's a symbol. So there's like, you know, fairly realistic-looking birds and then kind of sitting on twigs that look like they're off a cowboy shirt. And, you know, singers with six hands embracing a microphone. It's kind of playful, but...
11: uh, I think the best way to describe John Burke is satirical. You know, it's like uh, he has an, a phenomenal uh, dry wit and, and satire about all of his paintings. Um, yeah, you're just probably right, Tom. I bet um, the first one. You are probably correct.
9: <laughs>
1: Tony, I've noticed that uh, with your with your bird um pieces that you've been doing for most of them or many of them these days you're writing haiku poetry to go with it are we seeing a, a softer gentler more thoughtful tony fitzpatrick
11: um i think you're seeing a tony that's uh shows the uh condition of the natural world is a thing to be activist for mm-hmm. um and, you know, the, the haiku poets of the, you know, 17th century Japan, they, you know, they spoke to the condition of the world around them and nature. You know, they didn't have television. They didn't have, you know, media. Um, they were media. They reported about, uh, you know, human folly and, and foible and, and nature. It was all rooted in the seasons. Because we live according to what nature provides for us. And I still believe that. I still believe that that holds. Yeah.
1: Well, you I'm, said,
8: I'm, that, Tony.
1: I'm so glad both of you guys were able to to join us today. Um, I know that some people will tune in and say, well, why is she talking about art? But I agree with both of you that art the best art is political um i think that everything is is plays are political anything that causes us to see our world in a different light or to feel i was just saw last week the selling kabul at north light theater about the afghanistan withdrawal i mean there's no more powerful way to convey a message about politics than through art And so please, if you can make it to the dime this Friday, six to nine or earlier, if you happen to be in the neighborhood on Western Avenue, uh, go see John Langford and Tony Fitzpatrick because it will definitely be an experience. And John and Tony, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. My pleasure. We are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: We are pleased to welcome a new guest to our show. Marta Hansen is the National Program Manager for Power the Polls at Power the Polls. Um, And we're talking about being a poll worker. One of the One of the problems with doing this radio show is that I don't get to be a poll worker. And I've always thought that that would be fascinating. Maybe I should have done it back in the days when it wasn't so dangerous. um, But it is still, I think, a really important part of democracy. Marta, thank you for being here. Joan, thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Um, And give me give me and our listeners an explanation of Uh, Power the Polls and what the organization is trying to do. Absolutely. So Power the Polls is
12: the national leader for poll worker recruitment. We are a national nonpartisan initiative that first launched back in the summer of 2020, when, as you may recall, amidst the first wave of the COVID pandemic, we saw pretty scary uh, widespread poll worker uh, shortages across the country and polling place closures during the primaries. And so Power the Polls was launched that summer and we recruited over 700,000 new potential poll workers And as a result, there were no widespread closures in the November 2020 general election. And so since then, we have remained committed to recruiting a new wave of poll workers uh, who are the folks who, as you said, staff polling places on Election Day. They're the ones who check in voters, hand out ballots. Uh, troubleshoot voting machines and and make sure that voting can be a positive and empowering experience for every person.
1: Well, that was going to be my follow-up question. I want you to (laughs) talk about all the different kinds of things that poll workers can do. I mean, we all know we walk in to vote and there's a couple of people sitting at a table and we know know they sign us in and they help us figure out how to X or how to pull a lever uh, so that we can have our votes registered. But Um, There are other different things that poll workers do. Talk about that.
12: Absolutely. And I I want to also make a distinction, too, between poll workers who are uh, temporary employees like you or me who who take a day off or or work on just a day, and then also the full-time election administrators who were the ones in the county clerk's office actually running all of the -the behind-the-scenes work of the elections themselves. But in terms of poll workers, I would actually argue that serving as a poll worker is one of the most effective things that any uh, everyday person can do in support of our democracy. So as I said, folks uh, who are poll workers will set up polling places first thing in the morning, um, putting up signs so people know where to stand in line, uh, managing those lines so they don't get too long, uh, checking in voters. You know, a lot of places have been transitioning from old school poll books to tablets that they use. So so having the tech skills to manage the tablets, um, helping folks who need assistance? Uh, assistance using voting machines or uh, supporting voters who are seeking ballots in languages other than English. Um, so, really, just again, making making voting a really positive experience and and being very much the face of democracy. The one thing that I will I will add to that too is you know we talk a lot about get out the vote efforts, uh, mm-hmm. which are incredibly important to turn communities out to vote, and we need a place for all of those people to go to to vote, which is where poll workers really come in
1: one of the things that has always bothered me and i don't know if this is just particular to where i live or if these are the requirements everywhere is that it's it's not like you can't just do it uh half day it's a it's a full day commitment and that's always presented problems for me Is that just where I live or is that the way it always is? Is that you start at like five in the morning and you go till the polls are closed? So I would say the the answer is it really depends. And
12: it depends from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In some places, in many places, it is a full day commitment. Um, Many more and more places we are hearing about experimenting with uh, shifts. Um, and so having folks work work a half day instead of that full 15-hour day. The other thing that I will add is that there is usually availability for early voting support. So whatever early voting looks like in a particular community, they also need poll workers for that. And usually early voting hours are not quite the arduous hours of Election Day itself. So early voting could be a, a way to be a poll worker if you're not able to work the full day.
1: Oh, yes. Sorry. Uh, What are the requirements? uh, My mic was off for a second. What are the requirements (laughs) to be a poll worker?
12: Absolutely. So it depends also from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I did uh, actually before this call pull up the local requirements for the city of Chicago, um, where you can be actually a high school junior or senior to be a poll worker. A lot of folks don't know that. Otherwise, you must be registered to vote in Cook County um, to be a poll worker in Cook County. Although other jurisdictions, you can be, you don't necessarily have to be a registered voter in that county. You can be a registered voter from elsewhere in the state. Um, compensation in Cook County is between $170 to $255 um, for the day with additional compensation for additional work. And there is also a training session required, and I've actually got some uh, specific details also that I can share later on about, about poll worker needs for the upcoming March election in the Chicago area.
1: Do you have to go in person for the training session, or because of how we've learned to use technology during the pandemic, can that training be done by Zoom or online?
12: Yeah, I will say
1: most election
12: administrators that we talk to do some sort of hybrid. So there is usually an online component, especially with basic, you know, information that people can learn. Um, Although many folks do do in-person training, so you can actually test the voting machine yourself to be able to help troubleshoot if need be on election day. So it really does depend from jurisdiction to jurisdiction.
1: You know, um, I got to tell you, I'm blown away by the amount of money that a poll worker makes because I'm telling you, jury duty doesn't come anywhere close to that um, kind of um, that kind of a check. Uh, does it matter if you um, are a, a Democrat or a Republican You know, this is another um, question that really
12: does vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some states and jurisdictions have laws on the books requiring an equal number of folks from different political parties to serve as poll workers together. In other jurisdictions, it's less by law requirement and more a kind of preference from the elections office to try to make sure that there is a lot of representation of folks in the community. So it, it really does depend but I think ultimately, a lot of election administrators, and, and we as Power the Polls in supporting them, are really trying to make sure that poll workers reflect the communities that they're serving um, and also, of course, meet, meet any legal requirements that are on the books.
1: I'm curious about your organization. It seems to me that recruiting poll workers should be something that the um, elections departments, the elections boards Um, that, that it's their job to do this. Why is there a need for your organization? Absolutely. Um, Well, I will say first and foremost, election offices do themselves recruit
12: poll workers. That is, and, and every elections office is the one who has an official poll worker application. They are the ones who do the selection and the hiring and the training and the placement for all poll workers. So really, the election offices all across the country do own the majority of the actually getting poll workers into place. Where Power the Polls really comes is helping to recruit people nationwide and also get them to where they need to be. So, for example, if you go to powerthepolls.org, which is our website, you type in any zip code in the entire country, and it will pull up the specific poll worker application link, requirements, how much you get paid, contact info for the local office, and everything else you need to know about being a poll worker in your area. So, this is especially useful for some of our national partner organizations or for organizations, you know, even I'm sure listeners of your show who all live in different jurisdictions. Maybe some folks are in Lake County or Cook County or or somewhere else. And so by having PowerThePolls.org as a one-stop shop, we will direct people to exactly where they need to go to be able to complete their, um, their official poll worker application with their local elections office. And the other thing that I'll add is we have a super broad coalition of both business and nonprofit partners, many of whom activate their members in various ways. So, we've got student groups, we've got veterans groups, we've got faith communities, business orgs, civic groups, like all sorts of different organizations, and we help them integrate poll worker recruitment into the ladder of engagement for their own members. Um, So, you know, if a faith community is looking to be more civically involved, we can work with them and say, hey, encourage your your members to sign up to be a poll worker if there's a need in their community. So we're, we're able to help you know, raise awareness about the importance nationwide of recruiting the next generation of poll workers. And then we are the one-stop shop wherever you are in the country to get you where you need to go.
1: Marta, do people ever get turned away who want to be poll workers? I mean, I think about, you know, a lot of organizations like I'm for the local uh, animal shelter, anti-cruelty. I'm a foster, but I had to apply to be a foster. I had to be approved. Then I was eligible to do the training. Um, Can you be can you be refused the opportunity to be a poll worker? And if so, what would be the grounds?
12: You know, Joan, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question, and you had brought up jury duty earlier, and I think that's actually a really great parallel. Um, I remember being called for jury duty a couple of months ago and sitting there all day and never actually being selected, but the judge Said, you know, even for folks who aren't selected, it's really important that you have taken the day to be here so that we have a really large pool from which to draw. And it's quite similar with uh, with the pools of poll worker applicants. So even if you, you know, complete an application and are perfectly qualified, there is a chance that you will not get selected for that specific election. Maybe the precincts in your area are already fully staffed. Maybe there are not As many polling place needs, you know, maybe folks who have served in past elections are returning at higher rates. But what we hear repeatedly from election administrators is is that it is important to have long lists. So that if there are last-minute drop-offs, you know, someone's kid gets sick, and so they can't show up at the polls, or someone gets a new job at the last minute, they can't take the day off, that they have these, like, backup wait lists of folks who are eager and ready to serve. In addition to that, Elections happen all the time, right? And so the the upcoming elections in the Chicago area are in mid-March. And so it could very well be that someone is able to serve in March, but maybe they've got a vacation planned to come November, right? And so wouldn't be able to serve again, which is um, once again why these long lists are important. The one other thing that I will add there is... What Power the Polls really tries to do is uh, work where permissible, work with election administrators to identify specific needs. Um, so, to talk to election administrators in various jurisdictions across the country, and they say, hey, we need 50 more people here or 500 more people there. And then we can go out to our partner organizations um, or, you know, in, in conversations like this one and say, hey, there is a need in the city of Chicago. And when there is a need, then if someone listening completes an application, they are more likely to then get selected.
1: If you apply to be a poll worker, can you be assigned anywhere? Like what if you only want to work in your neighborhood? Great question and something
12: to talk with your local election administrator about uh, because that the placement happens at the jurisdiction level um, and so they're the ones who could help f- figure out
1: where, where you can where you want to be and, and
12: make sure you're placed there.
1: Because I'm, I'm, you know, I get, for some reason, my name comes up for jury duty a lot, and they send me all over God's country to courthouses that are hither and yon. And first of all, it, it wouldn't bother me so much, except for the fact that I never. Ever, ever get picked? Ever in my entire life? And I've—I don't know whether you know. I—I—I I, 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 I gather that if you're a registered voter, that that's like how one of the ways your name gets in for jury duty. But I swear to you. I have three times the number of requests to be on juries of any of my friends, any of the people I know, and they never they never want me. And, you know, a lot of times I'm driving. I'm driving an hour to get to these courthouses. That's why I you know, I think that especially if somebody is going to do this. Um, they're not going to be, you know, summoned and required by law to show up that there should be some control over, you know, I'd love to do this, but I really don't want to drive 45 minutes away at five in the morning to be over there. You know, there's a polling place that's three blocks from my house. Um, and you, you just work that out with the, the local election officials? Yes. Well, as so, I'm I'm sorry to hear about that experience with jury duty. That sounds clearly. I'm bitter. I'm (laughs) very bitter,
12: Marta. Well, maybe someone's hearing this right now and that'll...
9: <laughs>
12: I um, no, but I, I do think that that one one really key difference is that poll worker, being a poll worker is not a summoning, right? It's like not legally required. It is not legally mandated. If you complete your official application and get contacted and then say, actually... You know, I can only be within a five or 10 minute drive or actually that day doesn't work for me after all. Again, this is why the election administrators try to have those longer lists of folks so that they have as many folks as possible and can do do the matchmaking of placement um, with the folks who have applied with the with the polling places that have needs. So I um, would
1: sincerely hope you would not have to drive an hour. <laughs> well, you know, Marta, it it occurs to me. That, you know, voting is really important and it is um, it's not the sort of thing where you want to have to close polling places because you don't have the staff. Mm -hmm. Honestly, why isn't it done like for jury duty where you get a summons that, you know, you this is your this is your election to be a poll worker, you know, and then you take that summons to your boss and you say, just like with jury duty, um, I've got to have the day off why isn't it a requirement why do we rely on volunteers you know that is a that is a great question that feels like it
12: Predates either of us, <laughs> you know, and and would be an interesting question I think for lawmakers to take up in terms of kind of what does what is civic service, you know, what is it? You know, we, we talk to a lot of folks who really see serving as a poll worker as part of their civic duty, right? As part of giving back to their community, you know, helping their neighbors. And I guess I guess what I might also say is from what I have from what I have seen and from what I have heard, I mean, so much of it. Of, of you know supporting our democracy and giving back to community is for each of us individually to find the thing that resonates with us the most and excites us the most. So whether it's fostering animals, as you mentioned before, you know for some people it might be knocking on doors for a particular cause or candidate. For some people, they want to be doing deeply, deeply nonpartisan work that is in support of the system and structure of our democracy, which could be poll work. You know, being a poll worker. Or registering people to vote, so maybe maybe this is my organizer background. But it's uh, me, me, you know me thinking that the 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 work overall will be the most effective when every person kind of finds the the place to slot in that feels
1: most resonant resonant and impactful to them. You said that if you apply to be a poll worker, it's not a guarantee that you'll get one of those slots because you know perhaps you live in an area that where there's not going to be a lot of places to vote then they just don't have that great a need but when they look at <clears throat> when there is a need when there is an opening do they do they evaluate the applications based on any criteria and part of the reason i'm asking this is because many years ago before i was an opinionated person on the radio I was a journalist for twenty years and there was a time when I was first working in Chicago where if you as a journalist got a summons for jury duty, you simply called in and told them that you were a journalist and they would that was disqualifying right there. They didn't make you go because they knew nobody would want to seat you on a jury because that was just like the way of the world. Um and i'm wondering if you apply to be a poll worker and they need poll workers say they need 5 and they've got 20 applications what are the qualities what are the things that they look for in those applications to figure out who the 5 people are going to be you know that's a that's a great question
12: and something that I imagine differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but really is up to the discretion of the local election administrator, who is the one who is reading those applications and making those decisions. Um, I imagine it it could be a whole host of things, right? Like looking holistically at the number of poll workers, geographic location of poll workers, language skills of poll workers that they already have. And then seeing where any gaps might be and, and who the folks are who have applied who could fill those gaps. But it really is up to the up to the local election offices who are making those choices.
1: Um, so there's no established criteria that they're supposed to follow this. Anything that's you know set by the state board of elections. Uh, Once
12: again, uh, I know that I keep saying it depends, but it really does depend (laughs) on your state. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You know, there are something that I was certainly surprised to learn is that there are, you know, anywhere between six and eight thousand jurisdictions all across the country. Some happen at the county level, some are at the city or township level, and every jurisdiction has jurisdiction, as it were, over elections in their own community. Um, and so because of that, you know, based on state law, based on, you know, more localized law, there will be differences from from place to place, which makes it tricky to give a definite answer.
1: OK, let's say we've got a few thousand people listening to us right now and they're thinking, huh, that could be interesting. You know, I like I like elections. I like politics. i um, would you send them to um, powerthepolls.org? What would be their first steps? So the first step, yes, is to visit powerthepolls,
12: P-O-L-L-S, .org. And for folks listening, I would actually say now is a great time to apply to be a poll worker. Uh, the city of Chicago is currently recruiting for the March primary, as is Cook County. Um, both Cook County and the city of Chicago, which recruit poll workers separately, need several hundred additional poll workers. Um, in the city of Chicago, they especially need folks with early voting availability um, who have comfort levels working with tablets. Um, And then both the city of Chicago and Cook County need bilingual poll workers speaking English and another language. And then Lake County, uh, just just a little bit further out, is already recruiting for November. So they are looking for a few hundred additional poll workers come November. So if you are listening, um, by March 1st, I do encourage you to visit powerthepolls.org and complete the local poll worker application and hopefully get placed
1: and then come back on the show and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've always thought it would be so cool – to remotely broadcast my radio show while working as a poll worker. But I imagine that probably wouldn't fly.
12: Once again, different jurisdictions have different uh, different laws about what if anybody's listening, I
1: live in Cook County. If you're an official and you would permit me to broadcast my radio show while working as a poll worker, you know how to reach me. Seven, seven, three, seven, six, three, nine, two, seven, eight. Call. Talk to Andy. Tell me who to reach out to. And uh, in the interim, um, you can reach out to powerthepolls.org. Marta Hansen is the national program manager. Marta, thank you for answering all of our questions. Joan, thanks so much for having me and for uplifting this important, important call to action. (laughs) Thank you. We are going to take a break and be back with more after this.
0: Driving it home with Patty Vasquez.
13: Congressman Mike Quigley is raring to go because history is happening.
4: I am talking to you from the cloakroom just off the House floor, and they just voted 214-216 against impeaching uh, the secretary. It's been 150 years since the House impeached cabinet secretary, and I don't think it's going to happen today.
0: Wow. Weeknights 5 to 7 on WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: We often uh, speak to people who work for various courier newsroom publications because they're hyper-local. They have courier newsrooms in many, uh, not all, but many estates. And those reporters, like our good friend Pat Kreitlow with Up North News in Wisconsin, those reporters really take a deep look at the at the news that is, that is going to be happening in and around their state. And it isn't always just politics, too. You know, part of the reason why those newsletters that Courier puts out are so popular is that a lot of it is, well, for instance, I was interviewing somebody from uh, the Iowa starting line and I was perusing Uh, Their website and, you know, they had things like where to go for the best hot chocolate this winter. And the political reporter I was talking to, who you may you may recall, a guy by the name of Ty Rushing. There was a video on there. He's apparently an expert when it comes to cotton candy. Um, They really know how to uh, to touch people and inform people and have fun. They have a new newsletter out, which um, I think i'd like to hear more about it's called american freak show and nina burley is here uh to tell us about this new newsletter
13: nina thanks for joining us thank you for for having me i'm a chicago native so I'm, be, I'm actually very thrilled to be here oh wonderful where did you grow up no it's my hometown well i grew i was born in hyde park and then we moved around a bit i had hippie parents and we moved around <laughs> we lived in san francisco for a while in Michigan, and then I went to high school in Elgin, and then I came back after college, went to grad school in Chicago, and and really had all my first jobs there. I started out in Springfield covering politics as an intern for the Associated Press, and then Chicago, Chicago Tribune, and I lived right near Wrigley Field for many years. Wow. Well yeah. welcome back. No Cubs. <laughs> By the W. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so American Freak Show.
13: What does this newsletter contain? Well, I I started it um actually in a moment of Profound disgust, I guess, and I guess it was back in April. Um, really, just to amuse myself as a Substack, I was trying to um, point out the ways that the Ameri- that th- that our politics is just absolutely filled with these with these strange creatures who are so out of the norm and we're starting to get used to it and what the, what really started it was i was reading about um supreme court justice clarence thomas's um friend and benefactor uh the um what they sometimes call him the donald trump of of um dallas or houston and he's oh, a Texas yes. real estate Harlem guy I mean, harlan Crow, and the washington uh, monthly, I think one of the Washington magazines had done a little story about how he has a collection of Nazi table linens and a sculpture garden of dictators in his backyard, of, or I guess behind his mansion somewhere. And I just thought, you know what? I'm sick of this. Like, I'm so tired of the Steve Bannons and the Roger Stones um, and the Proud Boys and. Um, You know, Donald Trump's, um, uh, uh, for a while anyway, his so-called spiritual guide, Paula White, who you can see speaking on tongues and just saying the most insane things on YouTube. And I just thought, you know, this is a freak show. We're now like. You know, it's a carnival, politics is a carnival, and we're back behind the Ferris wheel at the tent, and it's like, you know, around 1900, and you go into the tent, and you see the, you know, the strangest, the strangest creatures known to man that are still human, and so I started writing it, you know, obviously I'm, is the satire, and um, I have been doing it for quite a while. And, and then I met uh, Tara, and we talked. Tara and going, she said, yeah. Yes, she said, you know, I'll add you to the Courier lineup. And I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Courier. I had just, I, I'm a contributing editor at the New Republic, and I write long pieces um, about various topics. And I had done a big piece on Fox News, and that's actually how I met her because. She's engaged in this effort to kind of balance out media in the United States and get through the silos to um, to people who maybe only get their news by watching Fox, which isn't a news channel at all.
1: No, that's, I, I refuse to call it Fox News. I call it Fox Cable um,
13: right. because it is, it is right. not I'm, news. I must misspoke. Yeah. Yeah. It's Fox Entertainment. It's really insult com- it's right wing mm-hmm. insult comedy. Mm hmm.
1: It absolutely is. I was reading and I don't know if you wrote this line or if it was written about American Freak Show. Um Tell me the American Freak Show's tent is so vast that we would have to run tours 24 seven to gawk at everyone.
13: Did you write that? Yes, I probably I probably <laughs> did write that in the beginning. Yeah,
1: I love that idea. Because, you know, I don't think the Republicans are a big tent. As a matter of fact, um, their tent has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller as time goes on. Um, But the Democrats, you know, um, people say it's like herding cats or, you know, you can pretty much have any opinion you want and still be a Democrat. But I think that's a strength, not a weakness.
13: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there is. There is the, the it's both a problem and a, and a, and a strength. You, if you can't get everyone to to speak in lockstep, then your messaging is is not as clear as, let's say, with the Republicans, with their with Fox News as their megaphone um, have is a basically like a daily lineup of three things that people just talk about over and over again you know, and um, they don't have that on the Democratic side. They don't they're not organized that way. But I would disagree with you on one thing. And I think um, it needs to be discussed and people need to need to think about it, which is the the, the Republicans themselves, the party, the you know, the Washington based, you know, conservative world is is a small tent. I mean, they're you know, they're trying to keep. Uh, immigrants out and so on and and that's their you know they're they're shrinking um their base is shrinking white evangelical Christians are you know as a number as a percentage of the united states shrinking and that's part of why they're doing this power grab and this panic but the trump movement the maga movement which is uh i would say a fascist movement or a proto-fascist mm-hmm. movement is a is actually a large and growing tent and it's it's partly because they um people go to his rallies as sort of entertainment and they have different reasons to be supporting this movement it's not just about you know Policy. In fact, it's not about policy oh, at God, all that no. they don't talk about policy. The, the, that's another problem that Democrats have, because Democrats, let's say if they go on MSNBC, they aren't going to do insult comedy. They, they can't they can't win on like Rush Limbaugh stuff. They the, they're the consumers of, of progressive politics want to hear about policies. And the other side is serving up something very different. And that's why you see, um, you know, kind of an alarming situation here where you can go to, like, white nationalist-led churches out, out, you know, Dakotas and find black people there. I mean, Jeff Charlotte's written a whole book about this. He so went out, and you know, and, and, and you go to Trump rallies and you see, you know, Latino and— black people and young people and so it's it's not actually really precise that their tent is small it's 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 not small it's just the way that they're certainly at at the core it's small and what it what it stands for and what they want is power for this minority but they have they have it's kind of an expanding blob
1: i guess what what i was referring to is that <clears throat> the Republican Party doesn't seem to exist in a way that it did uh, 10 or 15 years ago. It is the party of Trump. And I meant small tent oh, in the sense sure. that there is one person setting the tone, um, making the decisions. Oh, and, you know, I wanted to talk to you about this. Um I didn't mention, but Nina has written seven books, and one of them is called The Trump Women, Part of the Deal. And I don't know uh, exactly which Trump women are included in the book, but one (laughs) Trump woman, Laura Trump, is certainly back in the news. Donald Trump has made it clear uh, today. I mean, it was hinted about before, but he came out and said today that he wants Laura Trump is his choice to take over from Ronna Romney McDaniel, the Republican National Committee.
13: Give me your thoughts Who's on that. Who's Laura Trump? I'm sorry. Who's Laura Trump? L- you mean Ivanka Trump? No, the oh, Laura Trump. The, oh, yeah. wife, the wife of um, <laughs> yeah, one of the boys. Yeah, yeah. I forget which the, yeah, boy. Of course, the daughter in law. That's yes. right. And okay. Well, I've missed that. So you're telling me something I didn't know. As yes, today. I've been in, it was rumored yesterday
1: butt. when when it was apparent that uh, he was pushing Rana out. It was rumored. And today he came out and said that his choice, like who else is going to weigh in on this? I don't know. His choice for the next head of the RNC is his daughter in
13: law, Lara, Lara Trump. Well, you know, this is. Um. This is how the kleptocracy autocracies look, right? Mm-hmm. If you look around the world and you see the you know, Saddam Hussein or um the Aliyevas of, of Kazakhstan or you know, uh sorry, they it's not Kazakhstan, it's Azerbaijan. Um they um they all you know, they put their family members in in mm-hmm. south you know, the, the Latin American fascist dictatorships. The family members it's part of the clan. You're part you're a made man or not? You know, it's the godfather. And so, right. And That's you know, he's it made works.
1: it clear that the litmus test is loyalty and who's more loyal than is. than your than your family. By the way, and Andy blood, uh, Andy weighed in, she is Eric's Eric's wife. I guess Don Jr. Yes. is the one who's with Kimberly Guilfoyle. The best yes. is yet to come. Kimberly Guilfoyle, who I yes. can't believe was once married to Gavin Newsom. I just can't I know. wrap my head around every that one.
13: Every time I think about, every time I think about that, I have to, yeah, you have to take a step back and go, <laughs> what was that? But you know, Lawrence Sanchez. They, well, we can get on. I mean, you know, they some. You know, women go through. They burn through different kinds of men. I guess.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing about Laura is that of all of his kids, she seems to be the one who has been most interested in public office. Because there was was a time when she was exploring a Senate run, and then for whatever reason, it never happened. But as opposed to Ivanka, which, you know, doesn't seem to have any real interest in politics— um, and and the boys who, you know, got to help us with the boys. Uh, but Laura always yeah. came across as the one who, of all of them, could at least potentially make a serious run for office.
13: That's true. I mean, Ivanka probably could have at one point or another. She's very well-spoken, very suave and smart, and was interested in power. But I think the, um, the experience of... Um, the uh four years in the white house and then the, the insurrection i think that she's not as um keen on being you know in that meat grinder i i, I saw her at the uh I'm giving testimony i wrote about it the, her testimony at the fraud trial in uh in manhattan in november and um you know she's as as one and well-spoken as ever but I think that she's been dinged or dented by the experience, but that's just me. So my book is actually about six Trump women. It's about grandmother Trump, the German immigrant. It's about mother Trump, who was a Scottish immigrant. And then it's about, um, his three wives and, um, Tiffany, of course. And, um, you know, the, uh, the the fascinating thing about the Trump women is that the first two of them are immigrants, you know, and the founder of the Trump organization is, is the German grandmother because the German grandfather died of the Spanish flu, leaving her a widow with all these chil- small children, three children, I think. And her son, Fred, who's Trump's dad, was, you know, a teenager. And he did not found the Trump organization. He was too young to do that. She founded it and started it with her nest egg that he had left her some property in Queens, New York. And she started the Trump organization. And and that's, you know, one of the main, many sort of oddities about the way that Trump has gone about, you know, taking control of the political scene is that Unlike most politicians would have made made a, a a lot more of that. They would have talked about how their their grandmother was the founder and look, it was founded mm-hmm. by a woman and and rah rah and then his mother was a maid I found this out in the census for the book the New York census. She came over from this impoverished Scottish island. And was a teenager, and in those days, the wealthy, the Gilded Age, or the dregs of the Gilded Age, the last bits of the dreg- Gilded Age in the 20s, early 20s, were uh, were fond of hiring maids and butlers from the British Isles. And so her older sisters had already come over here, and she got a job in the Carnegie Mansion as, like, you know, polishing banisters or silver, right? A a low level maid. And she was doing that when she met Fred Trump, the son of, you know, the not too wealthy, but, uh, you know, okay, doing okay with her little company, um, grandma Trump. And, and she got married and she never lost her, um, fascination with, you know, she was like the, the little matchstick girl at the window of mm-hmm. this, this, you know, the Carnegie mansion. And she was obsessed with finery and with royalty and with castles and with gilded things. And of course, you see that comes right down straight into her son, <sighs> who who puts gilded things everywhere. And it's so but again, you know, when he and the children went to meet the Queen of England, if you recall, they, uh, you know, the kids all got, you know, got on the plane with them and they went there again. You know, any other politician in America would have been advertising the fact that here, if, here the grandchildren of a maid mm. are shaking hands with the queen or not shaking hands. He did. And he broke the protocol. But, you know, they're they're curtsying or bowing or, you know, saying hello to the queen of England. And that is the American dream in action, and they don't they don't mention it. You know, he won't mention it because he can't be. You know, women are women for him are are arm candy, and and uh, he cannot uh, be uh, he cannot talk about his his roots in um, in you know any other way than you know pretending to be to the manner born. Wow. You Nina, know, we need to take he's, a, he's, so anyway. A real, go on with, on.
1: I want to continue this conversation. I am learning so much and I think this is really fascinating. Nina Burley, uh American pol- political freak show. Um we are going to be back with more right after this.
0: WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Nina Burley joins us. You can find her new courier newsletter, American Freak Show, or uh, look up her Substack at American Political Freak Show. And we are talking about one of the seven books she's written. This one is about the Trump women. I always thought Trump's dad was the one who made the fortune and uh, passed it along. I didn't realize that his mom was really uh, the source of all this. You know, you've studied the family, and I want to ask you something. When people are trying to explain his behavior, oftentimes they point to Donald Trump's parents that his mother was distant and cold, and his father was basically cruel to him. And we've seen the way he talks about his sons, which certainly doesn't seem to be very, very loving, do you believe that is that is that an explanation that makes sense to you that he is the way he is because he was raised in a home without love
13: well I you know i mean to, to, to some extent yes the mother the mother wasn't that she was unloving it was that she um when she had his younger brother, which he was still like two years old or he was very young when she had the last child, she had a terrible um I don't know what it was, some kind of hemorrhage or something. And she was in the hospital for months, months, and months. I, I think it may have been almost a year. And so they say, you know, psychologists say that, you know, that there's a certain age where if you you lose this primary caretaker, you, you get messed up. Like, and she was, he was left, I think, in the care of the grandmother, who was this cold German woman and older, and then also babysitters. So, yeah, there's that, there's that thing that happened. And then the dad, yes, I mean, it's, Fred Trump was you know a monster, uh however, you know he did have there are five kids in the family, and the sisters aren't weren't like that I mean some of the sisters couldn't can't even they're in hiding they can't stand him um his brother wasn't like that the brother that the one brother the younger brother um I think it was the younger brother. I'm getting mixed, mixed up. One of them became an alcoholic and, and died. Um, and the other one lived a long life, recently just died of old age and, you know, up up in Westchester in a, in a mansion. And then the sisters, one of them became a federal judge and could have been kind of a, a Republican Hillary. I mean, she was. A, Trailblazer in the law and, um, like older than Hillary and became a federal judge and, and really was pretty moderate. I mean, you know, just a Republican probably, but, but moderate and actually famously said, you know, my brother is a monster and he tells lies. And when he became president, they, you know, the family didn't, they're not, they weren't supportive. I mean, obviously, and you see the, the niece going, you know, Mary Trump has her own podcast now, written books about what a monster is. But yeah, so that that's a long answer to your question. Yes, the family had something to do with it. However, I would say, and I'm not a shrink, but I would say that there's some there's some pathology there with him. There's something. He's a sociopath.
1: I I agree, and I I think that certainly the way you're raised um, has an has an influence on how you turn out. But there are lots of people who go through harrowing circumstances and become better more empathetic people because of their experiences so to lay it all on you know they weren't nice to him when he was a kid i think is i think is a little simplistic yeah, and um, it is, it and is. doesn't really yeah. take everything into consideration that should be taken into consideration that's mm-hmm. my little opinion on there
13: yeah i think it's a, correct Agreed.
1: So, with um, with your new newsletter, American Freak Show, what are you going to be writing about? Oh, geez. Well, I you know. Am I am I OK, Andy? I, I get some Nina, sometimes I get so wrapped up in my conversations that I stop looking out of at the clock. Yes, we're down. We're <laughs> well, down to like the final minute. So, real quick, tell us yeah. all about American
13: Freak Show. You've got it's one more minute. The same. I mean, i every week I try to focus on, you know, a, a person, a freak. So I've done Tucker Carlson. I've done Paula White. I've done. But I'm also writing about. You know, the absolute, the absence of norms uh, and just to re- the main point of it is to remind people that this is not normal. OK, yes. so today I wrote about the 91 indictments and how everybody thinks, oh, you know, this is going to lead to him being convicted and he's going to go to jail. And it's like, no, actually, what it's showing is that the legal system is, is not up to this person yeah. because he spent his entire lifetime delaying and playing the law against itself. And, and so my the point of the freak show is to remind people that this is a freak show. It is not normal because yes. people, we are starting to get to where it's like, oh yeah, that, like another conviction, another indictment, mm-hmm. another $83, an $83 million sexual uh, assault adjudication, or defamation sexual assault adjudication. That's not normal, right? Yeah. But we are so, we're just, we've beaten down by the sheer amount and audacity of, you know, and that's, you know, that was Steve Bannon, the, the Bannon uh, I'm sorry, I I'm sorry to, you know, use his language, Poop. but it was it was, you know, uh, thank you. Up.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Nina Burley. um, The newsletter is with the Courier system and it is American Freak Show. Um, That's going to do it for me. Uh, Patty Vasquez is uh, in her regular seat tonight. I'm sure um, we are happy to have her back. I will see you tomorrow. Don't remember. uh, Don't remember. (laughs) Well, you can't don't remember. But I'd prefer you don't forget that Richard Chu is here tomorrow at 6 a.m. I'll see you tomorrow at two. Have a great evening. Have a happy Valentine's Day. And today is Galentine's Day. Happy, happy Galentine's Day. We'll be back tomorrow. Have a great evening. Good night.